thank you so much, everyone, for joining. 22nd of October, 2006, for the Free Domain Radio Sunday Afternoon Chat Fest, a.k.a. Slugfest, a.k.a. Intellectual Mud Wrestling Challenge of all time. Um, I'd like to return to a topic that we haven't talked about for a while, which is uh, religion, because there has been a, a revival, a religious revival, <laughs> I guess you could say, of a debate on the board, which is to do with uh, people's perception of my hostility towards Christianity. And I wanted to, uh, um, because there are so many podcasts now, I've given up trying to chastise people for not listening in sequence. Uh, certainly, Chris, uh, you know, Christina was the last person to be listening in sequence, and she's given up. So I think if, uh, if my wife can't listen in sequence, um, I really can't expect anyone else to. So, uh, so this is a sort of refresher course with some additional data towards how it is that uh, I approach religion from a philosophical standpoint and also from a sort of practical standpoint. The general issue uh, that seems to confuse people, and you know, I'm sure that the fault is mine, seems to confuse people is that, and we'll just talk about Christianity, though what I'll say uh, is equally applicable to the other majors and almost all of the minors of religion, of religious beliefs. Um, I talk about the fact that religion is... Um, is, uh, is violent in its, in its uh, uh, imagery, in its moral commandments, in its ideas, in its storytelling, in its approach. And uh, so when I say that uh, religion is violent, and that's one of the reasons why I, I oppose it, I do get a fair number of uh, emails and, and uh, responses to that uh, statement that, that religion is violent. And uh, what people say, and I can certainly understand why they would say this, what they say is, my aunt, uh, the uh, lovely blue rinse lady uh, who lives down the block who bakes a pie every week for her neighbor's children, uh, goes to church every Sunday, and she uh, is certainly not a violent uh, woman, and therefore your premise that religion is uh, violent is incorrect. Right? So I was given a long lecture on the boards this week by a fine gentleman who has said that um, uh, when I say that uh, religion is offensive, to non-religious people because religion, uh, the, the Christianity calls for the murder of, uh, of non-believers uh, in various parts of both the Old and the New Testament, so you can't do that wood-splitting Old Testament equal bad, good te uh, New Testament equals good thing. Uh, uh, atheists, for want of a better phrase, do find Christianity offensive because it calls for uh, our murder, right? I mean, our, our death. I mean, there's no, I'm not making up any words here. I'm not trying to paint anything with a, a dramatic brush as I'm sometimes accused of. Uh, it is simply that you just look at the text, right? And so because religion is, is violent in its language uh, and unfortunately for most of human history in its practice, uh, people get a little bit confused when I talk about the violence that is inherent with, within religion and they believe that it is a counterexample to say that uh, they know a very nice religious person who is not trying to kill me, right? So somebody asked me at great length today, uh, do I currently have Christian bullets whizzing by my head? Are, are Christians gathering on the front uh, yard of my house uh, with, with torches and, and brands and are they going to crucify me and so on? And because uh, that isn't the case, then uh, it's, uh, not, uh, it's not violent, right? So this is considered to be uh, that I'm looking merely at the words and not at the behavior of the people. And that's an interesting uh, argument. So um, I generally, though, from a philosophical standpoint, I'm more into prevention than cure. That would seem to me a good, you know, when it comes to uh, 
uh, when it comes to sort of using the medical analogy, uh, a philosopher is, or philosophers as a whole, are more, uh, I think, uh, better suited in the role of nutritionists rather than surgeons, right? A philosopher is somebody who is going to say, eat well and exercise and you won't get sick. A philosopher isn't that much use when you do get sort of spiritually sick, so to speak, or when a culture gets spiritually sick. So what I do is I look at the language uh, that is inherent within religion. And so we'll just spend a few minutes looking at some of the theory and practice of um, uh, of, uh, of Christianity, sort of stuff within the Bible, and then we'll have a look at a little bit of the statistics of that practice uh, sort of throughout, uh, throughout history. So um, this is partly to do with stuff. When I was, uh, uh, after I left high school, I worked as a, a gold panner many, many years ago, I guess now. I worked as a gold panner for about a year and a half. I had a copy of the Bible and I read it. So I don't know how many Christians have read the Bible end to end, but it seems to me that when you join a group that has let's just say a, <laughs> a checkered history at best, it's probably worth having a look at the fine print and the stories as a whole and not just relying on sentimental Sunday school stories, but actually look at the text um, itself. So we'll just go through a couple of these. Uh, I'm not going to go through too many of them because they're kind of freaky, but <laughs> let's just go through a couple of these. And then, so this is, we'll talk about the theory, we'll talk about the practice, then I'll open the board for comments. So uh, here is um, uh, some commandments that come out of uh, the Christian uh, Bible. And uh, a lot of these are Old Testament, of course, so they would apply to the other two, uh, Judaism and, uh, and Islam as well, uh, the Muslim religion. You must kill those who worship another god. That's from Exodus. Kill any friends or family that worship a god that is different from your own. Our good old friend Deuteronomy. Kill all the inhabitants of any city where you find people that worship differently than you. Kill everyone who has religious views that are different than your own. Kill anyone who refuses to listen to a priest. Kill any false prophets. Uh, any city that doesn't receive the followers of Jesus will be destroyed in a manner even more savage than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Jude reminds us that God destroys those who don't uh, believe in him. Right. So there's lots of kill the unbelievers stuff. Uh, of course, we, uh, we as uh, people who have grown up in a sort of inherited Christian culture uh, really look across the pond or across the cultural chasm to, uh, to the Muslim world and find it absolutely horrifying and uh, we really don't see it as clearly in our own uh, sort of religion uh, that's pretty natural christians should not practice free inquiry nor socialize with non-christians don't associate with non-christians don't receive them into your house or even exchange greeting with them that's john uh, new testament shun those who disagree with your religious views uh, paul knowing that their faith would crumble if subjected to free and critical inquiry tells his followers to avoid philosophy uh, and, and actually, that <laughs> if that was the only commandment that religious people would just avoid me, <laughs> I would probably feel a little bit more friendly. Uh, judge other religions for not following Christ. Whoever denies that uh, Jesus is the Christ is a liar and an antichrist. Uh, Christians are of God. Everyone else is wicked. The non-Christian is a deceiver and an antichrist. Anyone who doesn't share Paul's beliefs has a, quote, an evil heart. Uh, false Jews are members of the synagogue of Satan. That's from Revelations. Um, uh, kill uh, false prophets. This is from Zechariah. If a man still prophesies, his parents, father and mother, shall say to him, you shall not live, because you have spoken a lie in the name of the Lord. When he prophesies, his parents, father and mother, shall thrust him through. And I don't think that means the doorway to Chuck E. Cheese. I think that means with a, uh, a sword uh, somewhere down in his innards. Um, 
For truly, uh, I say to you, uh, this is um, from Matthew, uh, because people say, well, the Old Testament is, you know, kind of cruel, and the New Testament is the New Covenant, and Christ came down to say the Old Testament was a bit of a mistake, and there was a bit of revision going on, but... Uh, uh, this is Matthew saying, For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Right? So uh, this is the Bible is true uh, uh, all the way through. Um, all of the Old Testament laws are binding forever. This is from Luke, New Testament again. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for the smallest part of the letter of the law to become invalid. Uh, Jesus approves of the law of prophets. He hasn't the slightest objections to the cruelties of the Old Testament, which include selling your daughters into sexual slavery, uh, slavery itself, a murder, uh, rape, pedophilia, and so on. Um, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. Not the smallest part or the smallest part of a letter shall pass from the law until all things have taken place. Uh, all scripture is inspired by God. Uh, there is no prophecy of scripture that is a matter of personal interpretation. Uh, that is from uh, Peter. Know this, first of all, that there is no prophecy of the scripture that is a matter of personal interpretation for no prophecy ever came through human will but rather human beings moved by the holy spirit spoke under the influence of bob uh, sorry god oh is it peaking too much i'm so sorry um sometimes when the uh, voice of the lord moves through me uh, it's a little more than mere electronics can handle uh, so thanks i will uh, <laughs> i will turn it down i apologize for that um Let's see, uh, Jesus uh, says that looking at lust, of course, is the same thing as, uh, as acting on lust. Uh, you should gouge your eye out, uh, all of that kind of stuff. The punishment under Jesus for transgression of any Christian law is eternity in hell. Obviously, that's fairly, uh, fairly psychotic. Um, slavery commands. Paul says that all slaves should be subject to their masters with all fear, to the bad and cruel, as well as the good and gentle. So you always have to subject yourself to secular authority. This is a very common thread throughout almost all religions that r rise to political prominence. They do so by supporting the, um, the predations of the rulers. Uh, the scripture cannot be broken, uh, says uh, Jesus Christ. All this kind of stuff. I don't need to go on and on, but I think you sort of get the idea that... Uh, uh, I just sort of wanted to point out that, you know, this stuff's all in the Bible. This is all in the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is not something which... Uh, is, is I didn't write this. I mean, people get mad at me like I wrote this when they're the ones who follow uh, these uh, sociopathic and psychotic beliefs about murdering everyone who disagrees with you. And this is why I find it funny when people feel that I offend Christians, right? I mean, or that I offend religious people. Uh, they uh, subscribe to a belief system, whether they know it or not, they're still responsible. They subscribe to a belief system that demands that myself and my wife and most of my, actually all of my friends would be murdered and they find that I am the one who uh, is offending Christians. I just think that's quite funny. So that's sort of the, the theory in a nutshell, although there's of course a lot more uh, than that in the theory. So let's have a look at it a little bit in practice, right? So the people who uh, say that uh, Christianity is anti-war uh, and so on, uh, and that religion, uh, re organized religion, is sort of anti-war. Um, that's the theory, is to murder everyone uh, who doesn't agree with you. And of course, because the Bible is an irrational collection of fairy tales, there's simply no possible way that you can uh, not kill anyone you want, right? Because it is, um, uh, it's all subject to interpretation. Now, there is a lot of um, controversy about the statistics that I'm going to tell you about now, so I'm certainly not going to pretend 
that this is the final answer. Because, of course, what you hear when you talk about the wars of religion throughout history is you hear, well, what about the atheist um, communists, right? Well, uh, I think that's a false dichotomy to say that uh, those who worship the state in the communist model uh, are somehow the opposite of those who worship the state uh, and secular power, usually in the religious model. Uh, so I don't really see that uh, killing people over doctrinal interpretation of the Gospel of Marx and Lenin uh, is uh, somehow different from killing people over the doctrines of religious texts. Uh, so these are two sort of two sides of the same coin. It's just two ways of holding power over other human beings: is the state and, and organized religion. And of course, I know um, many. I, I guess when I was in school, I knew socialists and communists who weren't trying to kill me, who weren't setting up gulags. But that doesn't mean that the philosophy doesn't have a horrible effect when practiced consistently in the world, especially when it unites with the awesome and horrible power of the state. So even though um, I knew some Marxists and Leninists who weren't trying to kill me, uh, it doesn't mean that communism is not an evil thing uh, which killed you know, 190 million people in the 20th century. Right? So the individual practitioner of a belief uh, is no a judge of the belief itself. The way you judge a belief is not by saying, well, I know a nice guy who holds this belief, right? Because then all you have to do is find one relatively decent Nazi and, uh, you know, suddenly Hitler is reformed as a saint. And I don't think many of us would feel that that would be a proper uh, way to go. So the way that you judge a belief is sort of twofold, right? You judge it according to its own internal logic and its, and its relationship to reality and practice and history. So the statistic, which I've sort of dug up, and I'll provide a reference for this on the board, is that uh, pretty much throughout history, uh, that's recorded history, and uh, uh, this is not even counting the lack of progress that is generally the case in religious societies or societies where there's no separation of church and state, which is an achievement not of religion but of philosophy. Uh, throughout history, we've had close to a billion people murdered through religious conflicts. For a democide, we can get to about 260 million people. That's governments. Uh, killing people uh, in, in non-war situations. War, of course, adds a lot more to it. But religious wars um, throughout history, uh, the ones that are recorded, and of course the numbers are highly subjective, so uh, they could be way off, but uh, even if you say that they're twice as high as they should be, you're quibbling over whether it's a billion people or half a billion people. Um, <laughs> I don't really think, you know, if you look at the moral horror of the Holocaust with six million people, I think that you would say that a hundred times that throughout history as a sort of bare minimum uh, would be something that would be subject to some scrutiny or some reservation or some, uh, some concern from moralists who are actually interested in, uh, in you know, preserving and enhancing human life rather than people who are interested in defending their own religious beliefs. So very sort of briefly, we've got the uh, uh, Albigensian Crusades in the 13th century, uh, Algeria 1992 and forwards. The Aztecs, the Baha'is, the Bosnians, the Boxer Rebellion at the, uh, uh, early, uh, the late 19th, early 20th century. The Christian Romans, Croatia, early Christian doctrinal disputes. The English Civil War, the Holocaust, the Huguenot Wars, uh, India 1992 to 2002. India, Sutis and Thugs, uh, Indo-Pakistani Partition 1947, a couple hundred thousand people died there. Uh, Iran-Iraq War, uh, the, the Jewish uh, uh, Holocaust against others uh, in the 14th century, uh, Jonestown, a more local American version, Korea in the 18th century, Lebanon in the 19th and 20th centuries, martyrs in general, uh, Mongolia, Malacca, Northern Ireland, um, Russian pogroms of the early 20th century, St. Bartholomew Massacre, Shang China uh, in the um, uh, oh, BCE, I don't even know what that is, a long time ago. 
Shimabara revolts in the 17th century in Japan, Sikh uprising in India in the late 20th century, Spanish Inquisition, Taipang Rebellion, Thirty Years' War, Tudor England, Vietnam, witch hunts, Zosa, uh, and this is, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg as far as violence uh, has been perpetrated in the name of God, of Allah, uh, of a, a wide variety of other deities. And this is not even to talk about, which I won't get into. I had sort of grabbed the reference here, but I won't go into all the stuff to do with Islam. I'm sure that people are fairly aware of the sort of bloodthirsty and murderous nature of the Islamic texts. So I just sort of wanted to point this out that uh, as a, um, uh, a non-believer uh, in, in these uh, sorts of fairy tales, that uh, when people sort of say that I am somehow offensive to Christians, uh, I would just sort of like them to invite uh, themselves, if they you know, so wanted, to just try on the following thought experiment so that they could get a sense of how it is that I view uh, this kind of stuff. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to change your mind, but uh, it may be worth uh, just trying this on as a thought experiment. So if I did a podcast, and, and not just a podcast, but a whole series of podcasts, um, where I sort of ranted and screamed about the need to resurrect slavery, uh, about uh, the, the fertility of uh, tween women, and how you know, raping them and selling them into slavery was a great thing to do, about how you should beat your children if they disagree with you, uh, spare the rod, spoil the child. Um, and if I also said that anybody who disagreed with my particular philosophical uh, fairy tale uh, should be put to death, uh, should have their eyes gouged out, should be burnt at the stake, should be crucified, should be drowned in water. Uh, and if I talked about the, um, you know, that if people didn't uh, start agreeing with me, that I was going to start a, a program to wipe out the entire world, of course, except for a couple of people I chose and some animals I'd put on a boat. Uh, I think, you know, like, <laughs> if you didn't put that in any kind of context, if you just look at the ideas themselves that I would be putting forward, um, <laughs> I don't think that you would say, like, if I had a, a huge lengthy podcast on why exactly Jews should be killed, you know, in, in masses uh, for being unbelievers in my particular religious fairy tale, uh, I don't think that if a Jew got offended by my outspoken desire to see uh, himself and his wife and his family and his, you know, entire tribe killed or converted, uh, if a Jew got offended at that, I would be very surprised if you would write a letter to that Jew saying, um, gee, you know, it's pretty offensive that you're offended by this, you know? <laughs> It's, it's, really a, it's really bad that you are offended uh, by somebody who's spewing a fair amount of, vile, uh, of bile into the intellectual atmosphere, demanding that you get killed. Uh, you need to be more tolerant. I know one guy who listens to this podcast. There are a couple of guys who listens to this podcast who isn't actually trying to kill you. So really, it's totally offensive that you would think that this guy has a, you know, a, a bad bone in his body. Uh, and uh, I, would just, if, I would be absolutely astounded if you would do that, if I was uh, sort of spewing out death to Jews and uh, a Jewish person got offended, whether you would write to that person and say, I'm now offended that you're offended. Um, <laughs> this, you know, this, is the, this, this guy's podcast is the most beautiful, sublime, and spiritual thing in the world. Uh, I think that that would be rather a startling thing to do. So just so you get a view, uh, and I'm, I know I'm not speaking to a whole lot of religious people here, but just so you get a view of what it's like from the other side, uh, that's sort of where I'm coming from when it comes to, uh, to religion. So yes, I'm perfectly aware that there are not uh, religious people who are currently trying to kill me, um, with the possible exception of uh, some um, uh, people who've made threats against Canada from a terrorist standpoint who will remain unnamed because I can't pronounce their names. 
Um, but uh, with, with that sort of exception, um, I would say that, yes, there's not a whole lot of people who get up every morning uh, chanting death to free domain radio and down with the big chatty forehead. Um, but uh, <laughs> that's only because people have spent a huge amount of time, effort, and, and, and unfortunately blood in opposing uh, religion uh, as a universal absolute phenomenon, especially it's, un it's uh, being united with the state. So uh, religion doesn't get off the hook, right? A tiger doesn't become kind because you take its teeth out, right? It's, especially when it's doing all it can to grow them back. So I just sort of wanted to point that out. I, I know it's been a while since we've talked about religion, but uh, I just wanted to, uh, um, to talk about that uh, so that you could get a sense of, you know, if you are religion, uh, that, um, uh, oh, and the last, okay, one last thing. <laughs> it came to me in a vision. I have to follow it. Um, <laughs> the one last thing I'll say is that we're just looking at the direct, um, you know, goddesides or however you want to call them, the, the religious uh, slaughters, the, the genocidal murders of enormous groups of people throughout history uh, for religious principles. We're just kind of looking at that. The one other thing I think that's quite true is that um, religion uh, was uh, very opposed uh, to the foundation of sort of modern capitalism, the separation of church and state, and very much opposed to science, right? So all of the benefits that we have in the world today uh, in the absence of religion uh, could have been around thousands of years ago, thus eliminating thousands of years of, you know, hundreds of millions of people living miserable, uh, short, nasty, despotic, brutish, bloody, hideous lives. So uh, we're just looking at the... Um, uh, we're not looking at the opportunity costs of there being religion in the world. We're simply looking at the direct sort of grades which reach almost to the sky. But we're not looking at the opportunity costs of what did it cost uh, you know, the world to have uh, countless scientists burned and killed for challenging religious doctrine. Uh, so uh, from that standpoint, there's, you know, uh, I mean, there's a whole world of crimes that we can only really imagine uh, or a whole world of uh, what could have been in the absence of this kind of murderous uh, unity of church and state. So I just sort of wanted to point that out so that people went, uh, understand where I'm coming from as far as all of this uh, sort of stuff uh, goes. So uh, if you have, uh, let me just, uh, uh, we've had a gentleman who've posted, who's posted, who has posted um, uh, something uh, bright, uh, surprisingly, no, <laughs> something bright. Uh, so uh, Mr. Gigamouthy, uh, let me just uh, unmute you if you wanted to add something else to that. Oh, Skype, you can do it. Uh, unmute, unmute, unmute. <laughs> Skype's just shocked that I'm st I'm, I've finished my intro this quickly. Uh, Greg, do you, uh, do you have a mic? Hello, hello, do you have a mic? Uh, he can, you can't hear, all right. Do, 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 do. Uh, can you hello. find out? I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, one, one day I'll get this right. Uh, yes, I've got you. Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, my first name's fine. Uh, the Skype ID is just for utility's sake. But oh, so we can go with St. Greg. <laughs> hey, whatever floats your boat. Right, St. Greg the Spiky. That's what we're uh, calling him these days. Sorry, inside yeah. joke. Go ahead. Captain Porcupine, I guess. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, no, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, reaching back into history for all these examples of, um, uh, of violence, to me, seems like... Uh, it, it, to me, seems like you're 
sort of ceding the argument to the religious, the, the religious in the here and now that, well, it's not violent anymore. But I think, I think there's there's plenty of examples you can find in in modern day history, and in even the current news that that demonstrate clearly that uh, religion as an irrational um, mode of thought as an irrational mode of understanding reality is equally as violent now as it was then. I'm uh, sorry, just, I, I hate to interrupt you, but could I just, I just want to clarify one point. Uh, are you disagreeing with me? Because <laughs> I don't want to have to put out this fatwa. I really don't. I just, uh, what was the last name again? G. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> right, right. No, no, uh, not, not so much disagreement, but uh, just sort of uh, clarification, I guess. No, please go ahead. I, I certainly could add something to that, but uh, you should definitely take it for a spin. Right, but uh, so, so like, I mean, you just go out and do a Google search, and you can find all kinds of examples of priests who kill people and people who've killed other people in the name of religion, and and even. Uh, basing it on specific passages they've found in their holy books. I mean, it's not just Muslims that do this. It's Christians and Jews and and uh, I mean, there's all sorts of examples. Um, I, I mean, everything from it from as um, well. I, I guess I, I can't really say innocuous, but as as. You know, it's a spectrum from the 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 Jehovah's Witness, for example, who won't or is it that religion or it's, it's the transfusion the, thing, right? Yeah, that's the, one, the Jehovah's the ones Witnesses. That won't, right, the ones that won't take their kids to the doctor because you know God told them not to, all the way to the Jim Jones of the world who convinced their followers to kill themselves. You know. Um, all the way on up to the, you know, the George Bushes of the world who launch massive wars in the name of, you know, defending freedom lovers from the religious zealots over the uh, uh, <laughs> over the Atlantic. Which no, that's quite right. And on irony. the um, the the gentleman who posted this sort of question about this on the board. I did. So he said, "You know, how many uh, how many Christians want to come and bomb, bomb your town into submission because you disagree with them?" And you know, my sort of response was that, um, "Well, there's you know a couple of hundred thousand dead Iraqis who might question the um, the veracity of that statement, right? I mean, uh, as I said, you know, George Bush said that he prayed to God about whether to go to war, and God told him to go to war. And uh, you know, then he of course said, "Well, we don't know that that's true. That's just what he said." And it's like, you know, this willing away of evidence is very common." in the religious mindset. You know, it's like, Christians don't kill people. Okay, well, what about this religious war that's going on in Iraq? I also pointed out, though it's, I think, a little bit less uh, empirically supportable, but it's something that kind of feels true, which <laughs> I know is not the best criteria, but, you know, I'll sort of throw it out there anyway, that a lot of the um, sort of socially engineered kind of laws in, in the world, particularly the anti-drug laws, are simply just extensions of the anti-pleasure, anti-sensual pleasure uh, aspect of, um, of Christianity, right? So, uh, when when a pleasure is not associated with serving the church or procreating more Christians, uh, you know, like homosexuality, or drug drug use, and and gambling, and so on, 
most of this stuff comes from Christians, right? So lots of people, you know, millions of people in jail around the world for, you know, having a bag of vegetation in their car um, simply because uh, this stuff is heavily influenced by Christians. So uh, I just, I've never taken any drugs, but if I did, my relationship to Christianity would probably be, uh, be even, uh, even uh, more harsh, I guess. Right, and and in in a sense, they're kind of using the state to sort sort of whitewash the fact that it's it's a really religious sensibility that's um, demanding all of this. I mean, the blue laws in the United States are infamous. Uh, what? I live blue don't laws. Don't be sad. Really. What was that? <laughs> no, uh, you know. Uh, Bars can't be open on Sunday, and you can't, uh, um, you know, there, there's a town that I live about 20 miles from, 15, 20 miles from uh, here, that uh, that you can't, you cannot sell alcohol at all any day of the week. And the folks who live in that town, they just go out of town, buy all their liquor, and bring it in, right? No, sorry, can I just interrupt you for one more sec? Did, do, do you actually... Did, did they actually have that law before you moved there? Or was it the <laughs> fact that you were ordering your, your moonshine by the trough? Did that sort of change things? or? Well, well I mean, uh, rather predictably, the name of the town is Zion. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, I mean, they've got laws on the books in a lot of little towns like this where you can't dress certain ways on certain days and you can't... And, and and they're all passed off as secular legislation, right? But but at their core, they're essentially religious edicts. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at, uh, and this is true of, uh, I certainly know this is true of Jewish culture, but it's certainly uh, to some degree true, true of Christian culture. If you look at a lot of the stuff that's going on, the welfare state as well uh, is a lot to do with... Um, uh, with the sort of Christian notions of charity and taking care of people, which, you know, is really just all about sort of resource reallocation, right? The church, uh, the church wants you to give charity to the church so we can distribute it as it see fit. Perhaps it's bait for altar boys that we don't know. But uh, there's a lot of that sort of stuff that goes on in legislation that has nothing to do with, uh, and it also doesn't have to do with the overtly religious aspect that was in the country, right? So we have lots of listeners from Europe who are completely bewildered by the focus that we have sometimes uh, on uh, in this show on religion because they're like ah you know here nobody believes in in God but if you look at the transposed socialism that arose in Europe after the fall of uh, religion which Nietzsche correctly you know accurately identified as early as in the mid 19th century that the fall of God uh, the ethics don't die when God dies right all that happens is they get transposed to the state as you can see with Christi with uh, the Christian the communist transitions so. Uh, I think that uh, for people to think that you've somehow evaded Christianity by becoming secular, uh, the sort of altruistic, collectivist, hierarchical, hegemonic, top-down income transfer to people who know how to spend your time, money, life, and energy better than you uh, continues. And this is not even to mention uh, the by now fairly tired but horrible uh, story of, what is it, up to 5,000 priests uh, now uh, being investigated for pedophilia in the United States alone, who were constantly shifted from parish to parish. In other words, that the, uh, uh, the, the Catholic Church, although it's other churches, but I think it was a bit more true in the Catholic Church, because if you're going to uh, not get married, you're going to, if you're going to have a priesthood that can't get married, you're simply going to attract more gay people, not because there's any particular relationship between 
homosexuality, homosexuality and pedophilia, but uh, if you've got that sort of those two cooking, uh, a church life is a pretty good life for you, you know, access to children, and, and uh, nobody's going to question why you aren't married and like to wear a smock. So uh, that whole aspect of you know, choosing the small amount of revenue and to retain the investment in the priests that the Catholic Church had entered into, choosing to, to keep that small investment safe rather than protect uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the sanctity of children's bodies, uh, absolutely heinous. I mean, if you could imagine the, uh, a massive pedophile ring being run out of a corporation, uh, imagine what would happen to that corporation. I mean, it would be just astounding. Uh, but of course, the church operates on a different moral plane, uh, and I'm not sure exactly why, but it just does. Yeah, I, I had I completely missed the whole pedophilia angle, but there's that too. Um, but but the state really then is sort of um, kind of like how Rand puts it, uh, replacing the ethics of the mystical sky god with the ethics of the tribe, right? Yeah, that's the um, what did she call it? The, the witch doctor and the uh, uh, was the Genghis Khan or something like that. The witch doctor. I, I'll come back to me. But, uh, yeah, it is, uh, it, is, uh, it is quite an astounding thing, and it's something that, uh, you know, I don't mean to sort of pump this book, although the first half is quite good, this um, idea that um, uh, we, just, we just can't talk about religion uh, as, an, as, an, as a uh, non-deific ethical system. Like we si it's simply not allowed, right? You, you simply can't talk about religion. You can even talk about communism as an ethical system. Uh, you can talk about uh, uh, ca uh, capitalism, uh, socialism, uh, you know, Republican, Democrat, liberal, whatever, left, right. You can talk about all of these things as um, uh, non-cultural, uh, political, or, or uh, ideological philosophies, but you simply cannot look at and talk about religion in this context. Uh, it's something that is it's still a great taboo, uh, and, and that, to me, is exactly why it needs to be talked about with some degree of, of energy and emphasis. Uh, because it is a taboo, it's exactly where we need to go. Uh, those of us who are interested in sort of speaking the truth and doing our part to heal the world, you know, I mean, any, any competent psychologist will tell you this as well, that, you know, whatever it is that you're, um, you feel is the most taboo is probably the first thing that uh, you need to explore because they kind of get their voyeuristic kicks that way. Is, is that right, see? <laughs> so, yeah, no, it, I, it is something I think that, that we really goes, do need to. I think Sorry, that go goes hand hand in hand with uh, with the with the state too. I I think in this country at least, you know, criticism of the government is sort of taboo now, and, and which is kind of ironic, given the First Amendment and all of the reverence around freedom of speech and whatnot. There's there's this sense that you can't criticize the the fundamentals of of this government that the the we've sort of enshrined the constitution the bill of rights and the founding fathers into a kind of religion of its own you know it's the constitution is kind of like our bible here and and George Washington and and Abraham Lincoln or at least the the mythical uh uh depictions of those characters have, are kind of like you know they've reached demigod status is what they've done um, with them, and 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 to to pick them apart or to criticize them in any way is is akin to um, um, shaking Hating your fist freedom. at God. 
you know, hating freedom, hating virtue, hating all that is great and noble and pure in society and being a sort of subhuman evil troll aimed at, you know, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. Right, just like how, you know, uh, criticizing the idea of God is, is uh, equated with hating morality. Right, right. Like, I mean, if you are... This is a dichotomy that, of course, a, a about 30 or 35 seconds of, of not even that intense philosophical thought can ditch pretty quickly, you know, to say that um, uh, if I am against the war in drugs, I must be for, you know, supplying free drugs to school children, right? I mean, this kind of dichotomy. This is what happens when a culture uh, loses its rationality, is it swings between these extremes of hyper-aggression and hyper-compliance. The hyper-compliance usually directed inwards towards the, the society that's close at hand, and the hyper-violence or hyper-aggression being extended towards societies overseas. But, yeah, when you lose your... Um, reason uh, as a society you just start swinging between these wild poles and this is sort of how totalitarianism works its way in because people get sick and tired of the seesaw and just say damn it we just need someone to to clamp down and churchill said about uh, the germans and i i don't know how true it is now that was raised by a german woman i <laughs> i could probably talk quite at length about it but he said about the germans he said you know it's a culture it's like they're either at your feet or they're at your throat there's nothing in between and uh, th that certainly is an increasing polarization that's occurring uh, in the West. And um, uh, it is uh, it's something that you either have to learn to mediate as a thinker, sort of put stuff out there that's going to mediate this stuff, uh, or you're going to end up with some sort of totalitarianism for sure. Right. You, you lose your reason, and you're left with only one method for <laughs> negotiation, and that is violence, right? Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Human beings always need to make collective, uh, sorry, always need to make decisions about resource allocation and, and and who gets what and who does what. And in the absence of reason, you, if, when you lose reason, you lose the appeal to self-interest. And when you lose reason, you lose the appeal to self-interest. Uh, it becomes hierarchical, which always results in compulsion. So would would you consider then someone like uh, Sam Harris a, a mediator? No. No, uh, sadly, unfortunately not. Uh, he falls into the classic trap of uh, Western intellectuals, which is, and this is not just Western intellectuals, but they show it more than other cultures who are more monomaniacal about the hierarchies they worship. But, uh, yeah, he is uh, skeptical in the true socialist or, or communist sense. I don't think he's a communist, but he certainly is a, um, a world government kind of guy. But, no, he, he says, well, religion is really bad, and what we need is a, um, a, a socialist-style world government to mediate the issues that are occurring uh, between religions, right? So, um, so he's like, uh, you know, he's like that irritable mom or dad who comes in and sees two kids fighting and says, "I don't care, just both go to your rooms," right? He's, he's that kind of guy, right? So, uh, he doesn't sort of care to really think things through as far as solutions go. And this is not rocket science. I mean, religion has been tamed, right? Religion was on its way out in the 19th century. Uh, it's just that when, it, uh, when its good buddy, the state, grew back in the mid-19th century, and especially and particularly in the realm of public schools. I mean, public schools in America, for sure, were entirely, completely, and totally set up in order to uh, rescue religious, uh, religious institutions from a falling away of the flock, and also uh, to uh, indoctrinate children from other cultures who were coming in, who were getting to be uh, more and more part of the cultural mosaic. Uh, public schools, absolutely nothing to do with wanting to educate children. Children were getting very well educated by the private sector beforehand, and much more efficiently so. But uh, public schools uh, were what saved religion from, uh, you know, its exit. And in a sense, I mean, although 
um, not everyone who comes out of public school is religious. They all worship uh, a sort of secular, uh, sorry, they all worship a kind of secular authority, and the church is a secular authority like the state, right? I mean, whatever trappings it uses, it's still a secular in this world kind of uh, authority, and you don't even need to look at the Vatican's $30 billion bank account to figure that out. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, once, once uh, religion came back through the apparatus of state schooling, uh, yeah, absolutely, the whole mess of the 20th century was, was sort of brought into being through that, that particular process. And Sam Harris is very much like, sorry, Harris is like that. He talks very critically about the irrationality of faith and then says that we need to subject ourselves to the irrationality of politicians uh, in order to free ourselves from the irrationality of priests. So it's like, you know, is there ever a door number three that you people can talk about? Like, ever. <laughs> like, well, we don't want door number one because that's God. So we'll take God door number two because that's the state. It's like, my God, you people are well-paid and highly intelligent, verbally skilled. You have access to great books. Is it really that hard to try and figure out some society where there aren't guns pointing at everyone telling them what to do? Is it, is it really that hard to, to, to think of? Uh, and uh, apparently it is. Or if you do think of it, you don't get uh, book deals the way he does. Uh, and that's, that's one of the reasons why I've... I've started to come to the opinion that, I mean, you really can't consider the one without considering the other. When you're talking about religion, you're really talking about the state. When you're talking about the state, you're really talking about religion as well. I mean, the, right. the, the and when two you put are, the two together, sorry, go ahead. I mean, they're 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 more than just synonymous. They're two, two sides of the same exact coin. That's true, and they're both, uh, as I've sort of mentioned before, um, the reflection sort of the fundamental sort of family experience. Uh, so, yeah, no, you can't. I mean, as I've mentioned before, the, the, what you need to do if you want to hold power over the human beings is you need to invent uh, a fictitious, hyper-moral entity that can't speak for itself because it doesn't actually exist. And then you need to claim that it only speaks to you and only you can interpret its will, and everyone has to obey, not you, but this fictitious, invisible, giant friend that you have that tells you everything to do that's right. So when, so th and that bypasses people's resentment of being, you know, if George Bush came to your house and said, you know, I'd like you to do X, right? You'd be like, hey, I'll, I'll put that on my list, you freak. <laughs> right? I mean, you wouldn't really take him very seriously, right? But uh, what they need to do is say, you know, your country needs you to do X, and suddenly it's like, oh, okay, well, I'm not submitting to George Bush then. I'm submitting to this ideal big buddy, friend, God thing they called the country, right? So if you can invent something and get people to believe this hyper-moral, abstract, non-existent entity and then say, well, only I speak for it, because, you know, the old thing is like, your country wants you to do X. It's like, oh, really? Can, can I get that number? Because I'd like to talk to my country. I'm not sure I've got this clear. And, of course, there's no number that you can call. The same way when the priest says, your God wants you to do X, it'd be like, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm going to pray and see what I get, right? Uh, there generally has to be this thing that you have to surrender your willpower to somebody else who claims to speak for some giant moral entity that has no voice. Right, and some people you have to work a little harder to uh, to, to confuse, and so you you assemble a panel of uh, 12 men in black robes, and they start preaching to you about things like original intent. Huh? What's that? <laughs> The Supreme Court and uh, oh, I the see, various I see, right, interpretations right. of the Constitution. You know, some people aren't satisfied with well, your country tells you you have to do this, and so, so that, then then you make it look more officious, right? And, and and you 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 release all these proclamations about uh, uh, the original intent of the founders and 
the, right, the right. proper interpretation of the Constitution, kind of the scholasticism of of the state, right? Right, right, and of course I can't wait for them to have a seance trying to call up the spirit of Jefferson and Washington. What did you guys actually mean? And what they would do is they'd, they'd come along and they'd say, the state takes how much of your income? Are you people insane? We fought a war over a 0.5% tax, and you guys are submitting to 50%? What the hell went wrong with our republic? And then we'd say in return, well, you guys should really have not done this whole state thing. I know it was kind of fun. I know it seemed like a lot smaller than the ones that came before. But, you know, just, just winging someone instead of not shooting them at all is still wounding them, right? So <laughs> they would probably have missed that out. Right. So you get people distracted, you know, debating, you know, how many, how many Jeffersons can dance on the head of a pin. And wait, they forget wait, about I know the whole one. idea. Tell <laughs> uh, me the first few bars. I think I know how it goes from there. <laughs> right. But uh, but in in doing so, then you know people are distracted away from the whole question of well, do we even need this state or not? No, absolutely for sure. I mean, it's like, do you want to be a Republican or a Dem Democrat? It's like, please, please, can we just get a door number three uh, at any point, right? But it's like that old Thomas Pinchot quote, right? He says, if they can get you asking the wrong questions, they really don't care about the answers, right? So. <laughs> You know, which, which, which party do I support is a whole lot uh, of a safer question for people in power than uh, do I need uh, anybody to point guns at me and, and tell me what to do. Uh, is, that really, uh, is that really... And people who want to do that, should they really be trusted with that kind of power, you know? Because this is also... I was thinking about this this weekend. There's this funny kind of thing where uh, people believe that, um, uh, that there's this group of people out there that can be trusted to do good with power. Right? I mean, they really do believe that there's this group out there that can have nuclear weapons at their fingertips and access to tens or hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know, available spending or whatever, and that this is not going to corrupt people, right? that this, this concentration of power in the hands of the state is not corrupting to some people. Oh, right? exactly the, the opposite, right? Fact. They think it makes them better. Like the exercise of this power makes them better. Right. I remember reading in the uh, Federalist Papers, Madison actually trying to make this argument that um, that the process of rising to the level of president would sh naturally shake out all of the uh, men of lower character, and only the most purest of heart could could attain such heights. Right. And so they wouldn't be distracted by. The, the base and simple desire for power over people domestically, they would be more concerned with the, the, um, the caretaking of liberty. Right? <laughs> so those who desperately seek power their whole life don't want power. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> Can we dig him up and kick him? Where, where is he buried? <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Like, I mean, talk about leaving a woman at the altar, right? I've pursued this woman for 20 years. I have finangled everyone and sold my soul to get a hold of this woman just so, just so I can marry her, beg her to marry me. Finally, she's mine. We walk up to the altar, and then I take off. <laughs> right, I got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Right, right. I, <laughs> I, got, I got up to that statement in the Federalist Papers, which I think is like number 73 or number 74, and it suddenly occurred to me that... Um, Maybe these guys aren't quite as smart as everyone says they were. <laughs> well, yeah, for sure. You, you know, you, you, another thing that you want to do is, is you want to um, 
uh, if you want political power, right? You, you have to convince people that there's this group of gods somewhere up there in the universe that know everything, right? That, that, that just know everything. I remember a very early conversation that I had with Christina where uh, she was saying, well, and I, I sort of said, well, how could this guy who's the prime minister or whatever, how could he know everything there is to know about health care and how could he know the military stuff and how could he know uh, roads and how could he know uh, buses and everything that, that sort of governments deal with? How could he have any kind of expertise in all of these things? It's very hard to become good at something. Uh, I, I even still m m uh, get the dates wrong on my podcast. So it's really, really hard to become good at stuff. And, of course, these politicians, they, you have to believe that George Bush knows what is best for the country, is the ultimate philosopher king, knows everything there is to know about running a war, and knows everything there is to know about how to effect change in a foreign culture through violence, uh, who knows everything that there is to know about uh, social security and investment and health and welfare and the prison system and laws. I mean, you have to just imagine that uh, basically he's a human god, right? I mean, this is sort of where the tie-in between religion and uh, statism becomes, uh, it's almost identical, right? Because in the religious context, power does not corrupt, right? So in fundamentally, God, who is the most powerful, uh, based on all sort of human standards of virtue, God, who is the most powerful, should be the most corrupt, because we know that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the more powerful God becomes in any rational philosophy, the more corrupt he's going to become. But of course, that uh, short circuits in the religious mindset, such that you can have uh, omniscience and omnipotence with benevolence and uh, a complete absence or the opposite of corruption, of perfect virtue. So this idea that in human society, in our sort of empirical day-to-day -day experience, what happens is we notice that people who gain illicit power, I don't mean sort of like a doctor has power, but it's not necessarily corrupting because you know, it's a voluntary relationship, or at least it used to be, and uh, people who gain sort of illicit or brutal power in the political or criminal, or you know, two sides of the same coin sense, that they become more and more corrupt. And, uh, but then we imagine that, that at the very sort of stellar heights of, of human potential, there is this you know, godlike philosopher king who can know everything about everything. And no matter how many times they're proven wrong, right, no matter how badly uh, George Bush screws up everything he touches, right, I mean, the man, the man has like the, uh, the withering hand of death, you know, <laughs> I mean, everything he touches, you know, people get killed uh, in, uh, in Katrina, people get killed in Iraq. Uh, people get thrown in prison because of these stupid laws. There's torture in Abu Ghraib. There's torture in Guantanamo Bay. Uh, they're now legalizing uh, torture and making uh, people who use torture immune for prosecution for those actions. I mean, this man, it literally has like the withering hand of satanic death because he's just an incompetent boob, right? But we have this fantasy that there's this someone out there who can wield all of this mind-bending power and who has a brain of such stupendous magnitude that they can be an ultimate lawyer slash surgeon slash public servant slash military strategist of the first order slash, you know, that they can make decisions about everything and that have access to all this power and it won't corrupt them. And <laughs> that fantasy would be absolutely unsustainable without religious faith. Uh, exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, he, he, be, he becomes... Uh, in, in your mind, uh, the Godhead, you know, is uh, at least as as I've had some people try to explain to me. Well, no, you know, he doesn't know all the details of all these subjects. He has brilliant men around him that single-mindedly focus on all of these subjects and then present him with all of the the obvious choices, and then he, with you know, his grand, uh, you know, wisdom of managerial Solomon. wisdom. Uh, Picks the right one, you know.
Right, so he's, uh, he's smart enough to know when an expert is giving him a good idea. That's why quite often when I watch the uh, show House, I'm shouting at him about what to do as far as medicine goes. Because I, I would choose him as my doctor, but I would definitely be able to override his decisions. And of course, then the thing is, you know, if, if we're not voting for George Bush, but we're voting for his um, accomplices, sorry, his, uh, his advisors, why don't we just vote for the advisors, right? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make any sense, right? Right, the, right. And the minute you start to disassemble all of that, I mean, it just, the whole thing just falls apart in, in your lap. You just can't believe in it anymore when you actually start understanding what's really going on. Right, and I just sort of wonder if somebody has corrected me. Oh, hang on, let me just add another name to that list. The <laughs> Boy, uh, these people donate too. Oh, well, it's for the course. Um, so uh, somebody has says uh, they're not legalizing torture. They just gave themselves the authority to define it. Right, right, absolutely. Just as it's not legal to counterfeit money, uh, but the Fed reserves the right to print it at will. So you're absolutely right. It's, uh, it's a very powerful distinction. And uh, testicle information gathering, I think, is the phrase. And certainly that's how I thought through most of my teens. So uh, I'm going to just unmute other people. If there's anything else that you would like to, to, uh, to add uh, to what it is that we're chatting about, I'm certainly more than happy uh, to continue on uh, with another topic. But if anybody has any comments about what we've talked about so far, now is the time. Hello? Hello? Hello. 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 <laughs> yes, we could we could keep doing this if you like. We're more than happy to. Who is this? Uh huh. Uh huh. You need a headset. Okay. Uh, excellent. Uh, let me just uh, do my little mutey unmutey thing. Wait. Let me just ask one of the senior engineers at Freedom Main Radio to click the mouse button. <laughs> let me just get that straight. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, um, hi. Um, well, it's just a question that, well, something I've been thinking about, you know, for the past, well, few months or so. Um, let's say that um, God revealed himself somehow to everyone in the world, that he really did exist. He gave some kind of rational or logical means to prove his existence. Um, would you, as an atheist, ration, um readily accept him? Or would you still choose to disbelieve in him? Uh, a very interesting question. Uh, I just have to get a few more parameters before I uh, commit myself to any kind of answer. So if you're a, um, uh, if you're a physicist, no, let's just say you're a mathematician. And of course, as a mathematician, you can't logically believe in a square circle. But if somebody discovers a square circle, would you then adapt your laws of mathematics to include that square circle? Is that sort of, would that be sort of equivalent? I'm just sort of trying to understand an equivalence here. Well, um, well, okay. I, 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 I know your points about how you think the existence of God is not logically possible. Um, but let's just say for the sake of argument that um, well, it could be proven so, so that somehow God did reveal himself, so to speak. Um, okay, yeah, so some, some invisible being, sort of like a big blimp, uh, sort of orbited over uh, the world and uh, broadcast his, his existence and so on. Uh, would I believe in the existence of uh, such a supernatural being? For sure, absolutely, because then he wouldn't be supernatural anymore, right? And, and if he was able to impress himself upon my senses, and if we were able to measure him and uh, sort of understand that it wasn't some sort of mass hallucination, if independent 
uh, verifiable scientific instruments picked up his godlike passing. Uh, absolutely, I would completely and totally believe in consciousness without matter then and just say, well, we're going to have to expand the definition of consciousness just a little bit to bring uh, this, this old being into uh, our, uh, our sights from a scientific standpoint. Uh, to me, that would have absolutely nothing to do with ethics, and it would have absolutely nothing to do with the Bible, right? Uh, so you'd just say, okay, well, now we understand sort of if there was some sort of, instead of X-rays, there were like Y-rays or Z-rays or something. Uh, you'd say, okay, well, so there's something there that we had no evidence for before. Now we have evidence for it, so we assume and we can accept that it exists. There's still no moral dimension to any of that, right? It still wouldn't be like if, if this floating sky god then say to me, you know, you, you have to uh, cut your own toe off in order to be a good human being. I'd say, well, okay, so we'll, <laughs> we'll say invisible uh, consciousness exists and it's insane, right? <laughs> that would sort of be the next step, right? But there would be nothing moral in it, right? I mean, there would be no moral content uh, if some sort of consciousness came along. You wouldn't judge that consciousness uh, as being... Uh, infinitely right or infinitely correct or, or infinitely moral, you, ju you would judge whatever that consciousness said by any other rational or objective standards. Does that sort of make sense? Um, yeah, I suppose it would. Um, also, just another question. Um, you said in, in your um, beginning piece that um, you felt the Bible, certainly in the Old and New Testaments, contained what you felt was um, some immoral or unethical um, uh, statements, well, okay, I'm not a Christian as such, but um, even still, I think most Christians would say that um, I would not necessarily condone the murder of atheists or, um, you know, I think even in the Bible it says that you can't even eat shellfish. Yeah, I'm sure most Christians eat prawns or mussels or oysters or things like that. So but that's only because prawns don't believe in God. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, look, I absolutely understand, and I'm certainly not trying to say that every uh, Christian is a homicidal maniac. I mean, that's obviously a completely unsustainable thesis and would be uh, highly offensive to homicidal maniacs. No. Um, so, but what I would say is that um, this is the very problem that we have, right? So there is no such thing as a Christian. That's just something that's very important to understand. There is no such thing as a Christian because there is nobody who practices everything that's in the Bible because it's impossible to practice everything that's in the Bible because so much of it is contradictory, right? So there's no such thing as a Christian. A Christian is a fantasy. It's like a, a, a unicorn that is a million miles high, exists, flies, and is both fire and ice at the same time. It simply doesn't exist. Um, and because there's no such thing as a Christian, everybody interprets the Bible based on what they've been told, their own particular family history, their, who, what, what kind of priest they happen to get, their own personality, their own um, ways of doing things, their own natural inclinations and so on. But there is no such thing as a Christian, and this is why uh, when uh, religion becomes uh, something that is politically uh, armed, right, that you get this constant fighting. There is no such thing as a Christian because there's no scientific method for Christianity. So... Um, I fully uh, am aware with you that lots of Christians don't want to sort of have me killed, but what I would expect then if Christians wanted to, to retain the, um, the, the, the label of you know, even remotely moral human beings would be if they weren't aware that their sort of God says that they should kill people, 
right, then uh, <laughs> when they become aware of that, the first thing they should do is not defend their God, right? That would sort of be the moral thing to do in that kind of situation. Like if I'm part of a club, let's just say I, I happen to look good in white, so I join the Ku Klux Klan, right? And I, I sort of go around and, and we have nice barbecues and cookouts and, and we all call each other Bubba and play horseshoes and you know, all the other stereotypical things from the South. And, and then someone comes along and says, you know they kill black people, right? <laughs> You know, it's right there in the text. In the handbook, it's right there. You know, it's like chapter 5. By the way, we're going to string up all the black people we can find and kill them as quickly as we can, and we want to wipe uh, the black race off the face of the earth, and we're white supremacists and so on, right? Now, if I just sort of joined this group because I kind of like the cookouts and I look good in white and, you know, I've got a good Halloween costume handy, then surely I'm going to be horrified by that. I'm going to say, are you kidding? They actually... This nice group of ghosty Casper white guys actually are going to kill people? Well, that's just horrible. I must have totally missed something. I'm absolutely not going to be part of this group anymore. I mean, that, that would be a, a decent, like somebody who didn't know, right? That would be a, a logical and decent moral thing to do. But that's not what Christians do, right? What Christians do is they say, well, that's taken out of context. <laughs> like, I mean, we, that's taken out. When we say black people... Um, they don't have to be perfectly black, <laughs> you know, we can, we'll kill dark-skinned brown people, you know, we also go for Chinese, uh, basically anyone who's not a wasp will kill them, so, you know, they, they, they will try and defend this God that wants me killed, and these, these holy texts that, that are perfectly moral, that are the highest conceivable statements of morality that say that I should be killed, when I point this out to them, if they don't know it, they should be shocked, appalled, and should stop being Christians, at least till they figure it out, at least stop paying your dues to the Ku Klux Klan, while you're trying to figure out whether there actually are genocidal killers or not, right, in terms of the, the ethics behind the ideology. Um, but the, the Christians don't do that, right? So they absolutely know that the Bible is full of horrible violence, and they've reconciled themselves to it for the sake of social conformity, career advancement. Uh, who knows? I can't even imagine what, what keeps Christians going to church, terror of their parents. I, <laughs> I have no idea, but... Um, uh, but that would be a pretty strong criteria for me. And I would absolutely, like, I would have an enormous amount of respect for a Christian who said, oh my God, I've never heard about this thing where they want to kill, kill you. I can totally understand why you're offended, and I certainly have some research to do. And then they would come back to me and they would say, you know what, I've looked up the quotes you talk about, it absolutely does say that there. I cannot be a Christian any longer because I don't think that murder is right. But th that has never happened to me. Right, that level of moral integrity, which is not even a hugely high bar, right? I'm not, <laughs> I mean, all I'm saying is don't subscribe to a belief that, that demands that people who disagree with you should be put to death, right? That, I'm not saying that you have to be a perfect example of a sort of shining moral perfection. You know, just don't hang with the genocidal freaks. That's all I'm sort of saying, right? But uh, in the entire 25 years that I've been discussing Christianity with people, I've never had one person who has ditched Christianity because of its genocidal beliefs. And I've, I've never even had one Christian who said, I can understand why you're offended by the fact that I worship a book from the highest moral being in the universe that says you should be put to death. Never even once have I had a Christian apologize for believing in something that, that horrible, right? That murderous, that destructive, that vicious. So, yeah, I... It, <laughs> That's, that's, that's sort of my, my take on that. Uh, feel free to <laughs> ask any other questions if this is helpful. Um, okay, I understand that, yeah. 
So go forth and convert. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, I'm going to open the uh, board up. If there's uh, anything else that uh, people wanted to ask, uh, uh, feel feel free. Now's the time. Hello, I'm Richie. Uh, hi, uh, let hi. me just uh, uh, unmute uh, uh, you. Uh, you, uh, you have the floor, my friend. Go ahead. Okay. So, if you don't believe in uh, any kind of uh, Bible, it doesn't matter which one, then can you still uh, believe in God? Uh, you'll have to tell me what you mean by God. Well, uh, you know... It's uh, something, uh, you know, uh, some kind of vision, like a sort, very, like a, like a, like a meeting point where we all come from, or something. Uh, you mean like a, a supreme being, a higher power, that kind of stuff? Yeah, something like that. Well, you can, I mean, you can certainly believe in whatever you want, but uh, it's not logical to believe uh, in uh, the idea of, of a consciousness without... Uh, material form, right, of life without death or birth or these kinds of things. So uh, from that standpoint, it's not, not logical and you would be incorrect to believe those things even if you didn't believe in some sort of defined deity like Zeus or Osiris or, or Buddha or something. Even if you, you had a sort of personal deity that was an abstract higher being, uh, it would be no more logical to do that. It would probably be a little bit less illogical because you probably wouldn't give that being you know, born of a virgin, all these saints, uh, these human characteristics, but in the fundamental sense, it would still be equally illogical. But I'm certainly willing to hear the, the counter-argument. No, okay. So, I was, uh, I believe, like, that if you, you, you can leave your body and still be some kind of being, you know? And, uh, uh, like a soul? Yeah, a soul or a ghost or something, you know? There's a light right. bulb or, I don't know. You know? I got it. <laughs> Now, yeah. let me ask you this, though. How, how do you know uh, that that's true? Right? How do you know the difference between uh, something that is true and something that is not true? Well, well I felt uh, that I have left my body before. You know? And when I, I'm uh, dreaming, sometimes I, I dream of, uh, of a future, you know? of the future. Right, right. Uh, and then you have any tips? Sorry? Go ahead, sorry. Maybe what was uh, your question? Oh, I was just wondering if you, if, I'm being facetious, if you've gone to the future, if you have any stock tips, because I'm stock currently tips. investing. So. Yeah, like oh, yeah, 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 that market, would be right? nice, man. <laughs> that would be good, you know. <laughs> I'd just love to have that power, for sure, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would uh, like that, too, you know. When I would, right. uh, if I figured that out, then I would let you know. But no. <laughs> That's very kind. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I feel so. You know, if you talk with a human being, sometimes you feel like an, a kind of spiritual connection. You know, it's a oh, sure, it's not yeah. material. Yeah, but it's it feels like it's a, it's a air or something. You know, it's air, but it's different. But I can't really explain it. But I I find it uh, not uh, material. You know, so right. But and I, I said, look, I certainly understand that. I I'm no sort of. A a base materialist insofar as I believe very much that we have a very powerful and deep and rich consciousness and that we absorb an enormous amount of information about people when we meet them. And certainly when I first met my wife when we were dating, um, uh, I experienced it as a kind of spiritual connection. 
She just experienced it as a really grabby guy. But I think that sort of fundamentally it was, uh, it was similar um, in that uh, I, I sort of floated in bliss and she used up at least a can of mace, I think, on our second date. But um, uh, so I do believe this is what, what you would call spiritual connections. I have no doubt about all of that. I think that we do absorb an enormous amount about other people. But I believe that we do that through the way that they present themselves. We do that through the way they speak, their eye contact, their body language, and so on. I'm sure that you are a very, very sensitively attuned to other people and you feel great connections with people and so on, I'm not sure, in fact, well, I am quite sure that that's not evidence of the existence of a soul because these things can be explained through um, other means, right? The soul is a huge leap in terms of, you know, now we have life without material form, which can be observed nowhere in nature. So, Certainly, if you could find some sort of proof for it, you know, this idea that when you die, your body weight goes up by 12, goes down by 21 grams, and that's your soul leaving or whatever. If there was some way to determine that, that would be pretty cool. And trust me, I would be fascinated and excited by the idea of a soul um, because I wouldn't have to shower. Man, that would be great. Uh, no shaving uh, would be fantastic. But uh, I would hesitate to say that because you feel a strong connection with people, and because you have visions when you're dreaming, which we all do, that that's evidence for the existence of a soul. I think that you'll have more fun exploring that from a physiological standpoint. Yeah. Well, I, I know what you mean, you know, because uh, I always try to search for uh, some kind of evidence. But, you know, I don't know, because it's so... You know, nobody really has any idea of, uh, you know, of it exists of that it exists or not you know you can you, ju you just can guess but uh, well, well I would say that uh, but, but you, you, you know as somebody who's obviously, obviously very intelligent and interested in um, uh, in empirical truth or ver verification um, the burden of proof lies on the some whoever proposes an idea right so if I say that the world is full of invisible spiders um, I sort of have to prove, right, uh, you, I can't say, well, you can't disprove my invisible spiders that can't be detected by any human form, therefore they might exist, right? So if, if somebody's proposing that there is a soul, um, the rest of us who don't believe that are perfectly within our rights, I think, sort of logically to say that uh, it's not the case until somebody can prove it. And look, I mean, if, if you're that guy, hey, uh, you could be the guest forever, right, <laughs> on this show, because that would be fantastic. But uh, I think right now the burden of proof lies on those who propose it. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah, I understand what you uh, what you are saying. You know, uh, I just think it's uh, in uh, some kind of other dimension where we where, uh, where we can't see where we are, we are not really living in it, but just for a part of it, and we have no knowledge of it. That's why we can't see it. And there, you know, I think yeah, there may be so uh, so many guides or different kinds of guides. You know. And uh, maybe uh, I don't know. So I think I truly believe that some people might have uh, discovered a way of looking in a different dimension, and feel you know that's uh, you know, and let other people feel that something is there. Sure. I mean, you, but what you're telling me is that you believe something, which is fine. But that's not the same as saying that something is true, right? I, I could, to me, to take a silly example, I could believe that I'm an elephant. Right, and I could say that I really believe that I'm an elephant, but that doesn't mean that I am an elephant, right? So you're saying that you really believe other dimensions and so on. I understand that, and there's a certainly interesting ideas, but that's not the same as saying something is proven and true, like in a logical or scientific yes. way. Yes, 
Yeah, Zabad, but yeah, it's true. You know, people, yeah, it's true. Yeah, I, I like to see something too, you know, where, where you can really see that, okay, you know, <laughs> that's, uh, well, that that explains everything, you know, what, uh, you know, that you can see, you know. Or oh, not you mean my see. blog? What? My Your blog. blog. Your blog. <laughs> this show, that's why. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is a nice show. Uh, you know, we can talk about anything, and uh, you know, people people have uh, good questions and answers, and so you know. Well, look, I'll tell you what. I mean, uh, we won't be able to solve this in this conversation, but if you would like to come back next week, if you get any time this week uh, in between astral travels, if you could come back uh, with uh, some evidence that maybe I haven't seen about other dimensions and so on, I really would be very interested in looking at it. But until then, uh, it certainly can't be the case that I could uh, uh, say that any of this is true or anything other than uh, opinions that... Um, uh, you know that you're sort of coming up with, which you know I'm not saying that you're wrong, but you said yeah, yeah, I know. a pretty challenging burden of proof on your hands. Uh, no, yeah, I understand, but I, I don't think I can come with some kind of proof. You know <laughs> what? Uh, what do, you, do you need two weeks? Is that what you need? Because you don't have to do it in one week. I, I'm happy to give you two. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it could take a whole year. You know, <laughs> people a year. Yeah, well, people. You know, uh, people try uh, to figure out uh, a lot of different uh, dimensions through all this, all of history. You know? So, well, um, I think Greg could do it in a week, so uh, yeah. you've got to race on. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, thank okay. you very much for your contribution. I really appreciate it. I'm going to unmute if anybody else wants to, uh, yeah. to jump in. Feel free. Now's the time. Uh, Greg wants to pick my nose? Pick me apart. Pick me apart? Oh, has he noticed the slight illogical inconsistency in podcast 468? Uh, gee, let me... Where's that a check button? Could you grab me the McLean's? It's recent. I wanted to read something from that. Um, Greg, did you, did you have a question? Uh, no, Christina do. doesn't want to hear me being corrected by anyone because uh, she hates that. <laughs> Uh, I did I pull? Like uh, hang on, I'm just going to go and pull the evidence from the server about podcast four sixty eight. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's it's um uh, it's, uh, the thread name actually is four sixty eight. So in case you're looking for it, but I, I was just sort of looking for some clarification, I guess, on uh, some of the things. Oh, he's going to get two fat today. I can feel it. <laughs> well, I didn't deserve it for the other one, but this one I probably will deserve it. No, I, uh, I, uh, I hope that we're not talking about the same hole, but, but go ahead. Um, the, uh, the, the, the focus around 468 was, of course, uh, embracing your dark side. Yeah, and it was actually everybody was supposed to embrace your dark side, <laughs> because I think you've got enough to go around, uh, and I think that'll just be easier. I think for me, I need to learn how to embrace my bright side. Light side, right, right. Well, that podcast will be a little bit later, right? <laughs> so, uh, there's a couple of things in here that really kind of bugged me. Um, the first being exactly how is it you're defining manipulation. Um, you kind of... Uh, wavered back and forth a couple of times throughout that podcast over uh, whether it was 
um, you know, some innate biological um, component or whether it was, um, you know, a, a, you know, behavior selected for or whether it was, um, you know, whether it could be or couldn't be a bad or good thing or whether it was completely amoral, right? And so if it's, if manipulation is defined as, you know, uh, behaviors that w that were kind of built into us biologically, then of course it's it's amoral, and we don't have a choice. We we can only manipulate, right? But if uh, if it's something that we have conscious control over, then it's something that can be characterized as good or bad, right? So you say. Uh, in one place in the podcast, you say that, um, well, here, uh, now theft and rape are how people who are corrupt get to get a hold of resources when they have physical strength and superior. When they're not in strong position, then they generally work on manipulation. So the implication is there that um, only corrupt people are manipulators, and that manipulation is wrong, right? But earlier on in the podcast, you say uh, physical attractiveness is a form of manipulation, which is not to say that there's anything wrong or bad about it. So right. Which is it? Well, first of all, I'd like to uh, to to give Greg the FDR award of the week, which is uh, that uh, I think he sort of noticed one of the subtle things about show 468, which is that I was not only talking about manipulation, but I was actually showing it in action, which was part of the subtle uh, complexity that I was working on. So well done, uh, 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 Greg. That was, that was very well picked up on. Um, <laughs> right, right. I get it. I've, I've been manipulating. <laughs> Response. Right, you see, you see, see how how brilliant the show is, really. Uh, that that way, are you going to go for that? Any any luck? Gee, if only that was a webcam, I'd get to see you making a face right now. Anyway, um, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this, this is this is this is this is quite right, uh, and it's an excellent point. Fortunately, it's not not the big hole I was thinking of, but uh, we'll talk about well, that. Well, there is that. there is a second one that I want to pick pick on too, but oh, do you, do, do, do you do you want, do you want to talk about that one now? Uh, well, I mean, it's kind of up to you, but... Because um. it's easier for me if we try and forget the first one. <laughs> so, okay, no, I'll talk about this one. I just, I'm sure you'll remember the other one. See, that's the reason I do podcasts, because it's harder to quote me back. You know, in among all the verbal drivel and bad jokes it's, uh, <laughs> and occasional screaming pedestrians, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to quote me back. So, um, Well, uh, as far as the biological side of things go, uh, yes, I, I do believe that there is uh, that there's the kind of manipulation that is um, uh, purely natural. And this is like, in terms of it's just nature. And this is basically stuff that um, uh, is common to all species, and anything that's common to all species is not something that can be called moral in nature, right? So I guess, you know, there's, there's an attractiveness standard to a humpback whale that uh, is different from what it would be for a human being, but obviously works uh, for them. So uh, physical attractiveness is a kind of manipulation that comes from nature because, I mean, you know, to be somewhat anthropological about it and, and fairly frank, uh, you know, s sticking an appendage into a hole is not a very logical thing to do, right? It doesn't really make a whole, a whole lot of sense, so to speak. 
And so from that standpoint, the fact that we're kind of tweaked by biological receptors and hormones and so on, and, you know, the sort of sexual focus that we have in our lives from, you know, age of 14 to about, for men, 12 minutes after death, um, that is, uh, that sometimes feels a little bit, uh, for me at least, like there's a kind of manipulation going on. Because it's not, it's not like a logical pursuit, right? In the absence of these hormones, you wouldn't say, I'm going to spend a good deal of my life's effort attempting to stick my uh, finger into somebody's ear. You know, that, that really wouldn't be... The th so the reason we do that is because there's all of these incentives from a biological standpoint to do that. Sort of pleasure-seeking and so on. And, and uh, so uh, from that standpoint, to me, that's just a kind of manipulation. It's not bad or, or wrong, but it can be dangerous. I mean, I think, you know, like certain, like anger uh, can turn to uh, rage. Anger's healthy, rage is sort of not healthy. And sexual attraction can be healthy, but some people will put far too much time and energy into that kind of stuff and think that they have value uh, because they are sexually attractive, right? So that's, and I think that's a little bit more of a danger for women because women are just fundamentally so much more attractive than us hairy back guys, but um, I think that women have a greater danger uh, thinking that they have value because they're attractive. So a kind of, man and that becomes manipulative because they're trying to gain value out of something that's purely biological in nature, right? So a woman doesn't have much control over the quality of her figure, so to speak. I mean, a lot of women who are, you know, who eat well and exercise, you know, still look like an elephant's leg or whatever, right? They're sort of tree trunk. But and uh, I've known some women who don't eat well and exercise who have great figures, right? So, uh, so that's all I'm saying. Sorry, go ahead. Isn't there really two things going on there, though? I mean, the the innate biological is uh, the, is the kind of the first level, and then the second level is where we choose to use that in a way that. Um, it's vanity-based, right? Like you attempt to feed your ego as a, as a valuable person because you can be sexually attractive, and that I think is dangerous. So in the first sense, I simply mean manipulation in the way that if I want to build a doghouse, I have to manipulate a saw and a hammer and a piece of wood, right? So uh, in that sense, manipulation that's occurring at the biological hormonal level is just nature making us want to have sex, right? And th that's what I mean. There's nothing particularly evil or wrong about that. That's just nature doing its thing to us, right? And, of course, it is because of our biological natures. It's a source of great pleasure and, and, and you know, for most of my 20s, a source of great expense and, and begging. Um, but, uh, um, I mean, that, that's just manipulate. Like, the hormones manipulate us, right? Like, I mean, the genes, we're here because of reproduction, and so we want to reproduce. That's kind of like the, the deal, right? I mean, a lot of us, anyway. So that, there's that level, a level of manipulation, but then there's people who take that level of manipulation that they didn't invent. I would just talk about women. I mean, it could be true for men, too. I'm sure it is, but I'll just talk about it from, from looking at it uh, as a man looking at a woman. But there's women who then will take those natural biological urges and the accidental, you know, bodies and hair and faces and so on that they've inherited combined with the youth and the fertility that nature grants them. And then will say, I am a more valuable or a special or a better person because I am sexually attractive, which is that becomes manipulative in a negative way, right? Because that's a choice. Does that sort of help? Right. But, uh, but I, I think it goes a little farther than that. I mean... When when you take when you how can I say this? All right, when you when you take your natural gifts and you choose to use them in such a way that you're focused entirely on bringing um, goods to yourself, um, as opposed to say um, offering your gifts, you know in a sort of 
see, see, I'm having trouble describing what I'm trying to say here. Where where you um, you recognize the value of your own gifts and you offer those out to people, saying maybe you'll find value in this too, and in the process you gain good from that, versus ver versus saying, well, I have this. I have this thing that I can use to bludgeon people over the head with to get what I want, then ultimately I do gain a good from that, but I gain less good than I would if I was trying to trade, and and the the other party gains nothing, in fact loses as a result, right? And so in the first case, it's win-win. In the second case, it's it's almost a negative-sum game. Yeah, it's a negative sum game for sure, absolutely, because you're also destroying the incentive for future production, right? right? So, so as we've talked, as I think I mentioned there, like if you're a herd of Vikings who go around raising the countryside and stealing all of the food from the farmers, then uh, yeah, you'll get a certain amount of food that you don't have to work to produce, but you're destroying the incentives for those farmers to grow any excess. They'll just grow enough to feed themselves, and then they'll arm themselves and fight you to the death because they're going to know they're going to starve if you come back. And So yeah, you're destroying productivity for the sake of short-term gain. It's sort of the heroine of history, right, that you get a short-term gain at the expense of a long-term negative. Right. So yeah, and for sure, that, and that's, that's immoral and impractical in the long run as well. But, but sorry, go ahead. Right, and it's, it's immoral. Right, so it's bad. Yeah. So that kind of manipulation is bad. Yes. And that. Yes, for sure, for sure. And I would say just to to, to there's the one other sort of distinction I'd like to put into the mix, uh, hopefully to confuse you into thinking that I was consistent in the first place, which I may well have been. We'll we'll find out. But um, to me, it's sort of because I'm in the marketing world now, right? There's sort of two kinds of advertisements, right? There's one advertisement which says, um, "This is a, 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 a something that will make you happier." And uh, you should you should buy it because you're going to be happy, right? That's sort of the one thing, right? And then there's like just about every ad aimed at women, and I don't know why the, this this susceptibility occurs. Although if you pick up Men's Health magazine and look for that six pack, it's the same thing for men too, where it says uh, you are a, a lesser person if you don't have this good, right? So one is saying I I can make you happier if you buy this good, and the other is you are deficient if you don't buy this good. Now, the former is a sort of, to me, a sort of more ethical kind of advertising. It's like a win-win. And the, neg the second is kind of like negative economics, right? And it's sort of a little bit more akin to what goes on in families, and it does seem to be aimed a little bit more uh, at women. Right. It's saying That's more manipulative, I think. You're broken and we can fix you. Exactly right. So this, the, it's all the way from the church to the state to the, uh, to the family to, to, you know, uh, every woman's magazine in the world, right? Because because, you know, it's, it's nothing but men who oppress women because men produce all those magazines and men buy them. No, wait, that's not right. <laughs> so, so then there, there actually is moral content to conscious manipulation, but not to the biological aspects of it. No, no, for sure. I mean, you. I mean, it, it would take a hyper, uh, like it would take a religion to say that uh, that the sexual desire is evil, right? I mean, because sexual desire is just what it is. It can be a very productive and positive force, right? I mean, it builds families, it makes men protect women, uh, and so on, and uh, it keeps the um, stocking industry alive, like all of the essentials of civilization. So there's nothing wrong with sexual attraction; perfectly healthy thing. But when it becomes you know, manipulative and uh, uh, if somebody thinks that they have value because they're sexually attractive, then it becomes manipulative and I think then becomes uh, sort of a problem. So, so then, 
that kind of leads into my second question, actually, um, on the whole question of biological viability. Oh, and I'm sorry, I, was just, uh, I just wanted to express as well, because uh, as far as I understood it from one of your posts, you were going to get a webcam and actually give us a demonstration of sexual manipulation. <laughs> uh, and I was going to give you like a five bucks through PayPal. And anyway, <laughs> well, maybe next week. Maybe next week. Uh, or I'll send you maybe. the disco soundtrack. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, so biological viability, right? So the the argument is that uh, we need manipulation to be successful biologically, but then at the same time you say that uh, this manipulation um, in fact you said it exactly this way the major problem is that where there's all this theft rape and manipulation going on there's almost no incentive to produce anything and you just said that here as well so my question is um, if if manipulative behavior, uh, which we've determined here to be is can be argued is bad thing, and and can be demonstrated to be a uh, a destructive force, how can we then say that it's a um, that that it's a viable means of biological success? You know. Oh sure, sure. Well, if, I mean, if manipulation yeah, if manipulation leads to general starvation or lack of incentive, as you put it, then 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 it seems to me that it, it's exactly destructive to uh, biological success. Well, y yes, uh, I certainly understand where you're coming from. Else, this is sort of the the the, the, the ninety second answer would be something like this. Um, oh, I got you. This if stutter. you are a Viking and you're just talking about a completely amoral spread of your DNA kind of situation, which of course life is founded on and grew from, then you know, universal rape is your best strategy for spreading those seeds in a time of predation. Right? So, I mean, as I've mentioned in a really early podcast, human beings can kind of go one of two ways. Right? So in a, a time of plenty, they tend to be more secure, less prone to violence, and so on. And at a time of want, they tend to be more trigger-happy and so on. Right? So people who grow up in abusive families usually are more, a little bit more sort of trigger-happy and impulse control becomes a problem because, of course, human beings have this incredible ability to, uh, in a sense, mutate into a variety of different personality structures based upon the economic cues or social cues or resource availability cues that are coming in from the environment, right? So if you grow up and you have no parents, it's likely because you're in a time of war or a time of great destruction, and so you're going to grow up to be more aggressive than you would be if you grew up in a time of sort of peace and plenty and all your mother's milk was available and you had security and so on, because that would likely be a time of peace, right? So when people grow up in great sort of uh, socially um, uh, or economically disadvantageous environments, then they tend to be more aggressive because, of course, there's going to be a high degree of competition for the scarce resources that exist. So they're going to be more aggressive. And that's you know, pretty much universally true that people who grow up in, uh, in want uh, end up more aggressive uh, in, in general. I mean, there's exceptions and so on, but uh, that's a general pattern. So in a sense, the personality takes its shape uh, to some degree from the social and economic cues that are coming in from a very, very early age. And so from that standpoint, if you are in a situation 
where there is general war uh, and famine and predation, which is, you know, just about all of human society um, and throughout almost all of human history, then being the nice guy does cause you to finish last, right? I mean, the guy who then sort of goes around and rapes, uh, of course it's evil and so on, but he's not going to be able to found capitalism and bring it to to the point where uh, he can uh, change the sort of social wants of society in his lifetime. So there's a pure biologically advantageous strategy called go and rape people uh, in a situation of extreme plunder and predation. Yes, it does add to it and makes things worse and so on, but that can't really be changed within his lifetime. That's one of the reasons why those situations tend to last so long and are so prevalent across the planet, even now, sort of in the modern age, sort of quote modern age. So, And of course, uh, other species do do this. Uh, you know, the, there's a, the cuckoo, right? the, the bird species that lays its egg in, uh, I think it's a finches or some other bird's nest, and then kicks out that other bird's babies, and then the other birds just raise that uh, because the egg, I think, is a similar size or something, and they just raise it. So that, you know, that sort of murder and uh, and uh, kidnapping, and then, you know, I guess planting a stealth egg in another bird's nest. There's tons of examples of that kind of stuff, which would be completely immoral for a human being to do, right? Like, uh, <laughs> you know, I'd I kill your baby and give you my baby to raise so that I get more babies raised and do this all over the place. That would be totally immoral. But it's something that occurs. These kinds of strategies. Strategies, uh, parasitical strategies, uh, they occur quite constantly in nature. So from that stand, from a pure sort of human-animal biological DNA standpoint, there are advantageous strategies that involve immoral actions, if that, if that sort of helps. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I guess I'm, I'm not quite under... It all goes back to the question of morality, doesn't it? Because I, I guess I'm not quite understanding that then, because... Uh, on the one hand, it sounds to me like you're just you're what you're you're saying is that you know in a statist society, your best course of action is to be a statist. Why should you be anything else? But then on the other hand, you're saying to be a statist is immoral. So if 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 you know if the if morality isn't um, akin, if it isn't if it doesn't include self-preservation, then what's the point, right? If morality doesn't include self-preservation, yeah. So, but, so um, in a, yeah. Know, go ahead. So, so in a society where rape and pillage is a necessity for survival, but will ultimately lead to your demise in the long run, anyways. Um, I mean, you have to engage in it to survive for as long as you can until it happens to you, right? So. Right, but I mean here we're to some degree talking about a society where I would say that ethics would be a pretty tough thing to even consider. Um, you know, it, it's the old, you know, if you're starving, do you have the right to steal a loaf of bread and all that kind of stuff? And if you're in a situation of perpetual war, uh, is it, you know, does it, does it pay to be a good guy uh, and, you know, whatever not? Like if you're in a situation where you have 12 siblings and there's not enough food to go around and you're like a polite, polite sibling who says, no, no, you go first, well, you're going to starve to death, right? I mean, so this is a very, this is a very sort of tricky situations. I would say in general that societies that end up in those situations do so because they have been immoral for quite a long period of time, right? So if you look at sort of Uganda, right, under Idi Amin and all of the other bloodthirsty monsters who ruled it in the 60s and 70s, you end up in the situation of perpetual civil war and cannibalism because there's been an extraordinarily immoral ethic that has gone on in society for quite a long period of time. 
And so just as if you live in an unhealthy way, at some point you can't turn around, you can't turn back, right? Like once you, you know, if you smoke like a chimney for 40 years, then you're going to get, you know, 99%, you're going to get lung cancer or emphysema and you're going to die, right? And then quitting smoking in your 39th year isn't going to change that. So I think we're talking about a situation where an immoral kind of ethic has dominated society for so long that it's devolved into a war of all against all. And I would say that ethics would be a pretty tough subject to talk about in that environment. And that is sort of what I mean when I say, as I did at the beginning, though in another context, that philosophy is about prevention rather than cure. Once you're in that kind of situation, to me, it is to some degree a state of nature. And yeah, it's sort of immoral, but... Uh, then you have to choose between life and morality, and of course the purpose of philosophy is to prevent that choice from having to come about. And in fact, to make the choice of morality to be the choice of enhancing your life, right? I mean, that's the central problem with the state, is that it pays people enormous amounts of, beha uh, enormous amounts of money for incredibly immoral behavior. And so once you take that factor out of the equation, people aren't going to make as much money doing immoral things, and they're going to make a lot more money doing moral things. So then self-interest and survival and flourishing and ethics all go hand in hand together. But where you have the dominance of theology or statism, then you end up with everything kind of being asked backwards, and people get positive economic incentives for being corrupt and dishonest and you know, evil and so on. And they get negative, econ uh, negative incentives sometimes for being moral. And so philosophy can't really solve that, I think, other than by saying we need a different kind of society. So we're really kind of walking a, a pretty dangerous tightrope here. And um, in what way? Um, well, I mean, on the one hand, we're saying that that uh, um, you know that that um, that philosophy and morality and ethics and all of these things, you know, properly understood, um, you know, are supposed to bring uh, the good life, are supposed to bring happiness, um, all of these things. But, it, but on the other hand, we're saying, well, you know, if you go out and you, you know, proselytize this sort of viewpoint, then uh, chances are you're gonna. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to significantly shorten your life and make it significantly worse because of the state that society is in. So the implication is that it's far better to just go along to get along than to actually uh, push through all of that to um, uh, to some higher ideal. Sure, and I mean, we can look at that just empirically in history, right? I mean, uh, if you were in Nazi Germany and you sort of railed against the state, you just get shot, right? You're gonna, you don't get to pass your genes on, you don't get, I mean, so that doesn't really, uh, you know, that, that's definitely a situation where to be ethical in the way that we would talk about it now is completely self-destructive, right? And philosophy can't solve that problem, right? It's sort of like uh, if, you're on a, um, uh, if you're on a raft in the middle of the ocean and you have a box of crackers, right? <laughs> You've got a box of crackers, and there's two of you on this raft, and one of you is a nutritionist, right? And you turn to this nutritionist and say, you know, what should we eat to preserve our optimum health? Right? And you don't have any fishing wire or anything like that, right? Then the nutritionist is going to say, well, all we've got is crackers, right? <laughs> so, you know, let's eat those, right? Not, there's no choice, right? And it's the same thing with moral philosophy, right? I mean, if there has to be choice in order for philosophy to have value. 
And if you're in a situation where it's a dictatorship and like, hey, the moment that they make free domain radio illegal, I'm off the air. Like, don't, don't, uh, <laughs> I mean, once I'm submitted to the point of a gun, uh, I'm obeying, right? And for me to say otherwise would be hypocritical, right? Because I don't believe in a cop's right to arrest me. But if a cop ever comes to arrest me, I'm going to go. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I mean, because I'm not in a situation where philosophy can help me anymore. It's like being a nutritionist when you only have one thing to eat. Well, just eat that thing. So, so, in, a, so in a sense, we're actually literally living lifeboat scenario right now. I don't think yet. Uh, but I think that that's sort of one of the reasons why I'm trying to put, uh, and I guess we're all trying to put out a fairly high degree of intellectual energy and communication into the sort of social mix to get this, uh, to get these questions a little bit more clear. Because for sure, I mean, you know, there there is no uh, no question whatsoever where all of this stuff ends without some pretty significant intellectual intervention. That uh, it ends in dictatorship and the silencing of virtuous men and women. Uh, you know, either through going underground or through more explicit forms. But, uh, yeah, absolutely, we, we know where this is all heading because it's not like this is the first time in history that uh, the government has grown precipitously over the course of, say, a single generation. So, yeah, absolutely, we are heading towards the lifeboat scenario. And so, um, you know, there, there's, as I said, there's a fulcrum, right? So we're like the long doctor saying don't smoke, right? And it, but at some point it doesn't matter, right? And if, if you're the nutritionist saying... Uh, don't eat this combination of foods, don't eat all this sugar and fat because you're going to become diabetic, right? And if you don't listen to your nutritionist and you become diabetic, then you go talk to your doctor, right? In a sense, the prevention nutritionist has failed and you don't go back and talk to that prevention nutritionist. Then you go talk to some other nutritionist who says, here's how you deal with diabetes and so on. But the prevention person loses their relevance once you contract the ailment in a permanent kind of way. And so, yes, for sure, our relevance, or actually my relevance as a philosopher, will absolutely fade uh, once you get a kind of uh, a strong abridgment of the First Amendment kind of uh, totalitarianism. I'll have nothing to say, for sure, because it will be, I mean, the, the cure will then pass on to other people uh, and won't have much to do with me at all. And, and maybe that's one of the reasons why, in a broader sense, philosophy is already treated as relatively irrelevant. Well, and that's also because philosophy hasn't been dealing with the root causes, right? Philosophy has, uh, has become irrelevant because people are arguing about particular semantics and particular kinds of uh, uh, linguistic uh, constructs and so on, uh, rather than uh, talking about the basics of good and evil. And that's because, of course, the philosophers who are public are all in the pay of the state or under the influence of the state. And, uh, you know, they, they're already in that sort of Viking Cossack state of nature thing where in order to speak the truth, they would have to give up their careers and their incomes and all of their training. And then they'd say, well, I wouldn't even have a voice anyway, because then I would speak the truth, immediately be cut off and never be allowed to speak again. So uh, they, you know, I'm sure they tell themselves a whole bunch of bedtime stories to sleep at night, but none of it has anything to do with integrity or truth, right? The best thing to do uh, with, um, uh, you know, the bad, bad money drives out good money. The best thing to do to discredit philosophy is not to get rid of philosophers, but to promote bad philosophers, right? Corrupt philosophers, uh, subjective, state-worshipping, snide, bitchy philosophers, right, which you can see in academics all over the place. That discredits philosophy, not getting rid of them, which actually raises their value. Right. The, the attitude being uh, one of two strains. Either the, the fundamental questions are already answered and we're wasting our time dealing with them still, or, or, or secondly, uh, the fundamental questions can't be answered. Right. 
Right, which of course then would make people say, well, if the fundamental questions can't be answered, there's no such discipline as philosophy, it's all opinion, and let's shut it down. But of course, people like, uh, they like their pro philosophy professorships, and so they don't, uh, they don't really talk about that kind of stuff, right? So. All right. So the, the third question I have, uh, the last question um, uh, from 468, um, gets, I guess, right to the, the, the specific point of having a dark side at all and and you kind of you kind of defined um, the dark side as as the specifically as the as our own biology um, and this is where I got kind of confused over whether you thought biology could be moral or not or whether it was just a uh, you know, an axiomatic fact, um, and and <laughs> forgive me for uh, quoting you extensively here, but I have to in order to kind of frame the question. Uh, are you going to throw all the verbal ticks in too, or? No, 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 no. <laughs> Do you mind if I throw them in then while you're talking? Oh, sure. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, you say that. Um, Manipulation is a pretty inevitable reaction to any sort of intimation or confrontation with one's own dark side. With the, and here's the key part, with the weaker side, the more petty, manipulative, cold, and cruel side, you know, all implying that it's something bad, which is just about maximizing resources. That sort of cold, calculating, mere biological, enormously powerful, but merely biological kind of approach. It's certainly my strong feeling that it's very important to accept our base biological calculating capacity to do some pretty great harm, right? So the implication being that by that our biology is, you know, in some sense, at war with our rationality. That that biologically we're programmed um, to do harm, and that our rationality is a sort of um, governor to that, or a opposing force, or split personality within us. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Right. Right. I guess so. I guess you, yeah, I think I think I understand your question. Is is there something, uh, some sort of innate contradictory uh, nature within us between our biology and our rationality? Is that right? You know, if if we're two halves, good and bad, is that it, how do you explain that in a material sense? And if you don't explain it in a material sense, you know, are you suggesting then some kind of transcendent? Um, I don't know. Imprint on the mind that is rationality. That rationality somehow exceeds biology and and is like a a blanket over our biological desire to do harm. Right. So it, it, in a sense, that would be a pretty religious approach, right? To say that we have right. this original sin called biology, which we can hopefully temper with rationality that is against our natures. Does that sort of is right. that sort of your question that's, or objection? That's that's the that's the impression I really got from that that passage in in the in the podcast, and it it kind of bugged me because 
I, you know, all along I've been working on the presumption that rationality and our biology are essentially one and the same. That mm-hmm. the reason, you know, there's this, you know, problem with, um, you know, unhappiness is that the, that we've we've kind of constructed an artificial. Um, We've artificially created this this contradiction between um, biology and rationality, and it, it sounded to me like you were kind of buying into that whole thing. Right, right. Um, well, uh, this is sort of my my perspective. It's, for me, it's always important to remember that the culture that we're in is is pretty irrational and pretty corrupt. Right? It's pretty medieval in its in its in its presumptions and its suppositions. So the way that we're taught now is not the way that we should be taught. Right? The way that we're raised now is not the way that we should be raised. That is going to result in, in contradictions within our natures that are not innate, but simply uh, provoked by irrational uh, upbringings and school, public schools and, and histories and so on. So uh, I, you know, when I'm talking about contradictions that exist now, I don't necessarily mean that they're innate to us as human beings in the way that you know, bones and veins are, but it's simply the way that we're taught, right? Any more than it's innate within our biology to believe in Jesus Christ, it's just that that's what most people are taught. Uh, you know, it's the Son of God and all that kind of stuff, the three-in-one oil of uh, Christian, Christian theology. It's just something that we're taught. Um, so from, from that standpoint, uh, I would say that I wouldn't view this as innate, uh, this, this contradiction. But when we look at things empirically, and I'm not suggesting that, that you aren't, I'm just sort of pointing out where, where I would do it, is uh, human beings uh, almost inevitably, and this is the basis of totalitarianism, will almost inevitably choose survival over um, virtue. I mean, this is just absolutely universal. Human beings will choose uh, the survival of their children over uh, an abstract st- uh, stand for a principle of truth or, or virtue. And they're not uh, one and the same? In what way? Uh, I'm saying uh, that the, the pursuit of, of survival, the pursuit of self-interest, um, isn't um, that isn't virtue? Well, uh, we can just look at it in our own lives, right? I mean, you and I both pay our taxes, right? Although we know that it's immoral. Okay, correct. Right. So, I mean, we're choosing freedom uh, in a sort of a localized material sense over a virtuous principle, right, because uh, uh, it would be more virtuous. Uh, you could make the argument, I wouldn't necessarily, but you, you could make the argument that the money that we pay in our taxes goes to uh, support a war and the murder of other people, and so there's a causal chain from us paying our taxes to other people getting killed and so on, right? But we don't go and live in the woods in Montana. Uh, we pay our taxes and uh, have uh, pleasant chats about philosophy, but we don't, uh, you know, we don't run up against uh, the, uh, the, the, the armed might of the state and go down in a blaze of glory to make an abstract point. We just, I mean, I'm just working empirically. I, this doesn't I, mean that what we're doing is right, but it just is sort of how we're living, and that's sort of a good place to start in terms of, of ethical ideas. We also know that we have the right to self-defense, but if a cop um, stops us on a highway, uh, I submit uh, you know, as meekly as a little lamb, <laughs> so to speak, uh, because um, my jiu-jitsu is getting a little rusty. So uh, you know, from that standpoint, I just sort of look at my own life and say, well, uh, I choose 
um, you know, f uh, physical liberty over the abstract principle. And yeah, I have reasons for that, and I think I can do more good here than in prison and so on, and I don't want to go to prison. <laughs> so I don't want to be a pirate. What's that old, <laughs> that old uh, Seinfeld? But, um, so are, are, are uh, so I'm just sort of pointing out... Sorry, go ahead. Are you suggesting then that to be um, consistently virtuous, to be consistently... Uh, moral that we have an obligation then to not pay taxes and an obligation. No, what I'm saying is though that no, what I'm saying is that um, if it was a free society, right, um, and uh, somebody was um, uh, uh, being regularly held up and sort of didn't move and didn't fight back and so on, at some point we'd say, well, look, you're not really standing up for yourself here, right? You're not really standing up for what's right. You're just surrendering your property to bad people who then use it to, you know, pay hitmen to go and terrorize your neighbors. You're sort of enabling them and so on, right? You could make that case. Um, and, of course, the moral crime would still be more so on the part of the people who were... Um, uh, who were doing the violence, but the person who submits to the violence and, you know, sort of buys his own freedom by paying off the mafia, who then used that money to expand their power and so on, right? It could be said that that's a kind of enabling behavior that might not be the most moral thing in the world and so on. We certainly would feel more admiration for somebody who fought back or at least moved away and stopped enabling the criminals and so on. So uh, from that standpoint, you, you certainly could make that case. I mean, it would be a complicated argument to get into right now, but it, it's at least a theoretically viable uh, case and uh, that, that you could call it cowardice for uh, somebody who would not stand up for themselves and you know, retain their property and ended up feeding organized crime and so on. Now, we, what we want, of course, is a society where you don't have, those, you don't have to make those choices. Right? You don't want to have a society where it's like the Sophie's Choice, if you've ever seen that movie, those kinds of, you know, which, ch which child do I choose to live in the concentration camp and so on, this sort of lifeboat scenarios, right? You want to have a society, and that's what philosophers, I think, should work to, to promote, where to be ethical is to follow your self-interest. Whereas, you know, these ridiculously terrible choices that we're faced in right now, the money that I pay in my taxes is going to fund a war where people are getting killed. Uh, do I then not pay my taxes and go to jail? Or do I, you know, those kinds of, we, we, we want to have, uh, so philosophy cannot answer those questions. Philosophy cannot answer those questions. Um, it can simply point out that those are bad things to have in your life, those kinds of choices. Philosophy is all about designing a system or rather eliminating uh, the, the sort of violence of the state and, uh, and the, the brutality of, of religion, which says that uh, any, any situation where those are your choices is a bad system, right? Just like any scientific theory which comes up with a contradiction that says, okay, for the scientific theory to be true, uh, a rock has to fall both up and down simultaneously. There's something wrong with that scientific theory or any moral theory that comes up with, you know, the, the most moral actions are rape and murder. Something's kind of wrong. You may not know exactly what, but something's kind of wrong with that moral theory. And any society where your choice is to be forced into supporting murder or to go to jail, there's something fundamentally wrong with that society. And... So the vast majority of people in the world, throughout history and in the modern world, they simply go along in order to maximize their resources, right? So they, they go along because the alternative is to get killed or to be thrown in jail or concentration camps or, you know, uh, to, to be stoned to death or, you know, throughout most of the world. And in more subtle forms of social ostracism, even in, in the West, where those things are less, uh, of course, far less uh, of, of a risk. But uh, most people will simply slide along, as I talked about. They're sort of products of their culture. They'll simply slide along 
in a sort of manipulative, cold-blooded, frankly kind of way. They'll just try and maximize their resources, which is not an unreasonable thing to do in a state-of-nature kind of society, right? I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that I would take a job as a guard in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany, but if I couldn't get out, I'm not sure that I'd go out. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't go out in a blaze of glory fighting the state because it wouldn't work. It wouldn't help. Right, So that's sort of what I'm saying. It's just looking at the way that I live, and that doesn't mean that it's right. It's just sort of the choices that I'm making. And looking at history, that human beings do make those kinds of decisions all the time where they simply choose in a state of nature where intense violence is being applied against them. They just obey. I mean, this is what Noam Chomsky says. He says, the amazing thing about violence is that it works beautifully. Like, violence works wonderfully, uh, both in terms of controlling children uh, as you know sort of from your own experience, and in terms of controlling citizens in, in a society, uh, you know, this is why the state is so dangerous, because the violence that it uses works absolutely beautifully in controlling people, right? There's almost no examples of uh, civil insurrections short of people actually dying of starvation throughout history. Everybody just gets in line and tries to survive, keeps their head low, keeps moving along. Uh, you know, there, there are no revolutions, uh, in history that are really substantial. There's a few minor exceptions, but for the most part, uh, people just, they get along, they go along, they take jobs with the state, they'll do whatever it takes to you know, take care of themselves and their family, and they'll keep their heads low, and they'll turn themselves into little obedient statist mice in order to buy another day or week or month or year of life. I mean, that's, that's inevitable. That's what happens. And uh, that's sort of where I'm sort of starting from in terms of trying to reason some of this stuff out around biological calculations. So, so in, to summarize, then, uh, virtue and self-interest are not synonymous, but ideally they should be as closely associated as possible. And where they're not, we should choose self-interest. Well, I would say that the should become sort of irrelevant at the point of a gun, right? I, I would not say that somebody who chose to go out in a blaze of glory when faced with, you know, a, a statist intervention and then dragging them off to a concentration camp, part of me would be like, you go, brother, you know, but part of me would also be like, hey, if they come for me, I'm going quietly with the hopes that I get out in 10 years or something, right? So for me, the, the morality ends where, where the point of a gun is. There is no should, there is no should not, you know, if you want to comply, if you want to not comply, it's, it, it's irrelevant, right? It's sort of like the question of what should I eat when all you have is a box of, of crackers. Right? You eat the crackers, right? I mean, nutrition doesn't make any sense when you don't have any choices. And ethics don't make any sense when you don't have any choices. Um, but I simply am pointing out that the vast majority of people do choose to comply and obey. And a lot of them will do it passively, but some of them will do it more actively. Like in Nazi Germany, people just sort of went around their business and kept their eyes shut and kept their heads down. But some people were like, great, I finally get to release my sadistic side in a concentration camp, and they sought out those jobs and so on. And other people were simply assigned those jobs to be guards in concentration camps, and if they didn't obey, they would get shot, and they went along, and then they got further corrupted and suicidal because of the evil they perpetrated perpetrated and so on. But uh, good and evil, uh, just for me at least, doesn't, doesn't really mean anything in a state of coercion. So what you want to do as a philosopher is to try and design societies which do not reward coercion, right? Where coercion is not, uh, is not subsidized, is not abstracted to the layer of the state and thus a source of enormous profit uh, to people. Uh, and uh, you do that simply by pointing out that violence is occurring when people don't want to look at it, either in the church or the state or the family. Right. If the, if the ideal is pork ribs and sweet potatoes and all you have are crackers, that then it, it would be kind of silly to refuse to eat if 
you're looking for pork ribs and all you can get is crackers. Right. I mean, we call someone an anorexic if they don't eat where there's food available, but we don't call someone an anorexic if they're thrown in a basement and they're starving because no one's giving them any food, right? Uh, where there's no choice, there really can't be a whole lot of judgment about the ethics of the situation. In my, and, th and you've passed beyond the horizon where philosophy can help you, just as once you've got diabetes, you can't be helped by somebody who specializes in nutritional design of, of a menu to prevent diabetes, or you move on to someone else. Okay, I think that makes sense. So it's, it's really more, it's not so much intrinsic nature, it's more a, a social circumstances, social conditioning, that sort of thing. Right, and of course people who did, you know, as I mentioned in the article, people who did choose to go out in a blaze of glory to fight all the evil in their surroundings would never live to reproduce, right? So that, from a biological standpoint, those genes, if they ever did exist, uh, probably didn't exist for very long, which doesn't make it, again, right or wrong. That's just looking at it from a biological standpoint. Okay. Well, that, that's the challenge, and where I haven't sort of sorted it out, and I want to make sure other people uh, get, get their say, but the challenge for me in this situation is if uh, people are a product of their cultural circumstance, which seems to be very common throughout history, what is the nature of their moral responsibility? But that's something I'll deal with in another podcast. That's the one, the one hole that I skirted a little bit in that one, which I'll sort of have to come back. Just working empirically, people obey whoever's in power. That's just an empirical fact. So in asking for you know, pure moral responsibility, uh, asking too much, I think it is when you're in a state of nature, uh, like a, an anarchy that is a dictatorship. But uh, I will uh, unmute uh, everybody if you'd like to have uh, other questions, comments, issues, suggestions, problems, suggestions for new hairdos for me, please uh, feel free to mention them. Hello? Hello? Yes, it's Lapafax again. All right. Uh, are you going to disagree uh, with me again? Hang on, let me just... Um, <laughs> I just have to wait. Uh, uh, Skype has this wonderful ability to completely erase everybody in the chat window and then bring them back. It's really quite exciting. I keep thinking everyone's going to find better podcasts and then coming back to this. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, um, I was just thinking about last week's um, chat in which you mentioned that um, the state is, uh, well, the collapse of the state you feel is inevitable. Um, I'm just wondering uh, what method you think uh, the state will, well, how, how exactly would the state collapse? Because I was thinking, well, okay, let's say the US government, say federal debt becomes unmanageable. Would that just mean that the US federal government would collapse or would all governments collapse as a result, sort of like a domino effect? Um, yeah, what's your thinking on that? Well, I think that, uh, again, it's very hard to prognosticate. So as somebody who's trained in history, I tend to go back rather than forward because you can't tell the future, but you can certainly have some idea of what happened in the past. And the reason that the entire system would collapse was that what would cause the U.S. government to uh, collapse would be an inability to pay its bills because it could no longer borrow money, and therefore it would be a, a run on the U.S. dollar. People would start to sell their U.S. dollars, which would drive the value of the U.S. dollar down, and so inflation would, uh, would uh, become extraordinarily high. Uh, the U.S. would be tempted to, pay off, to print more money in order to pay off its debts, but uh, that uh, situation, which is what caused the hyperinflation in uh, Germany in the 1920s, uh, and of course towards the end of the Roman Empire as well, that situation is unlikely to occur because the um, the information uh, the, inf the market Im information is so quick these days and there's such a strong understanding of the relationship between uh, the overprinting of currency and inflation that the moment the US government began to increase the printing of its money supply 
the, um, uh, the international money markets would simply discount the dollar based on the volume increase of the, uh, the additional money supply. So if the U.S. printed uh, 10% more money, everybody would just take would just demand 10% more payment in U.S. dollars. So it really wouldn't do them any good. They would lose purchasing power of the dollar to the degree that they increase the printing of the dollar. So uh, everyone's pretty much uh, into that, and they would understand that. Well, today, I'm just looking at the, uh, I think a whole bunch of people left when we start talking about economics. Wait, wait, we'll get back to talking about uh, sexual manipulation, and Greg will get his webcam set up. But um, so from that standpoint, uh, once the U.S. dollar begins to go down, uh, which it will, uh, because I mean, this, this, you know, anything which is mathematically, uh, which is going to end, will end. It's just a matter of when, and uh, that uh, that will cause the U.S. dollar to become worthless, which means that the U.S. government will simply be unable to pay its employees, uh, will be unable to pay the army, uh, and uh, uh, that's maybe why they shipped them all over to Iraq. <laughs> I don't know, right? To get them overseas so that it's hard for them to get back and have an insurrection to go get their pay. I don't know. But, um, uh, and of course, once the U.S. currency begins to go down, it won't be the end of the world for the domestic consumer because, um, you know, things like PayPal or credit cards or whatever will simply become the de facto currency. There may be a resurrection of the gold standard. Banks w could issue their own currency. There's lots of ways to bypass the use of sort of official fiat currency in a, in a, free, a relatively free market situation. So that's not necessarily the, uh, the end of the world for the private consumer, but it certainly is the end of the world for government spending, right? So uh, there will be an enormous amount of hardship. Uh, the people who are on welfare, the people who are on old age security, I mean, they're all going to get thrown overboard long before uh, anything else, right? I mean, uh, the people who have less uh, power, less control, uh, in other words, uh, you know, the people who are not as politically organized, certainly the, the poor people will start to get hosed. Uh, the uh, the people who are old age security will start to get hosed because we're sort of being in a post-democratic situation by that time. But, uh, yeah, the government's sort of unable to pay its employees, and that's how the government uh, collapses, right? It's not, it's, uh, the effects are quite complicated, but the cause is quite simple. Now, the reason that I think that this is going to happen sooner rather than later is because uh, I believe that the war in Iraq is the methodology by which people are cleaning out the treasury, right? The war in Iraq, you know, there's $400 billion being spent in the war in Iraq. This is not going to the soldiers, as we all know. It's certainly not going to the people who supply army to, armor and, uh, to the soldiers. It's going to, uh, you know, the private sector. And the war is occurring because uh, the government is running out of money and uh, they need to transfer as much money as possible, and there's no faster way to transfer money from the public sector to the private individuals than to have a war on, right? Because um, people then will, are perfectly happy to support massive increases in government debt and so on. So that's uh, the war on terror, really. is It was the replacement for the war, as you know, for the war, the Cold War, in terms of allowing people to transfer money from the, uh, the public sector to the private sector. And the reason that I think it's even, I've sort of upped my estimate to something even closer now is that relatively recently, I think within the last month or two, the uh, U.S. federal government, or the Fed, sorry, the, uh, the federal exchange, uh, the federal reserve system, they have stopped printing the money supply statistics, right? They have stopped releasing the volume of money supply that they're printing to the public. Uh, that's a pretty significant thing. Of course, it's not reported in most of the major media because they're really interested in uh, emails that uh, Mark Foley sent to a bunch of pages. But the far more relevant information is that the Fed has stopped printing uh, money supply information. And that means that uh, they're printing money like mad, which is, the, again, the final spasm of stealing from the public purse. They're printing money like mad, uh, gathering money like mad, and they're trying to obscure the degree of money printing that's going on from the general market. Uh, of course, there will be people who are in the know who are going to short the U.S. dollar and so on, but uh, this is a, another example of, of what happens when 
the government begins to run out of cash and you know things get all i mean there's a there's a massive uh, a grab right you know as i mentioned previously there's like you know you're the uh, there's a whole bunch of, uh, of 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 people and there's like a a big a big vault of money and there's a a door coming down and people are going to just go in and grab whatever they can it's not going to be organized it's going to be a real feeding frenzy free for all and so um the government is simply going to be unable to pay uh, its debts and its workers and so on uh, which is a fantastically positive thing i mean it's risky uh, don't get me wrong but it's amazingly positive because um it means that uh, people get released to actually have productive jobs in the private sector and the government shrinks simply through being unable to pay its debts, right? So it's the only way the government can shrink. It's never going to happen voluntarily. So that's uh, sort of the way that I see it uh, uh, going down. So just let me know if that sort of makes any sense for you. Um, yes, it does make sense. Well, it's just one thing I've been thinking about, though. Um, why is it that uncontrollable debt only seems to occur largely in the United States, because I was reading some government statistics from my own country, and it seems that certainly since when Tony Blair's been the Prime Minister, uh, national debt in Britain has actually fallen, yet it keeps on going up and up and up in the United States. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but do you mean, is it the national debt that has been reduced, or the deficit that has been reduced? No, the national debt, not the budget deficit. Um... So, so, yeah, the amount of money that the government owes to other people, not the difference. And this has occurred during a time of war, is that correct? I mean, that's, you could, I'm sure you're right, and if you could send me a, a link to uh, some reference on that, that certainly would be quite remarkable that the government would be paying down its debt during a time of war. Uh, but uh, uh, certainly I would be happy to, to read more about that. Uh, certainly in, uh, the national indebtedness of America is not actually that significant relative to other debt loads throughout the world. So, for instance, uh, Canada, has a, with no military sector to speak of, has a higher per capita national debt than America, and uh, Italy has a higher... I think it's like Italy, at least a couple of years ago, was Italy, then Canada, then a bunch of other places. But uh, the, the national debt within the United States relative to the size of the economy, which, of course, the U.S. has one of the largest economies of the world, I think from the largest... So it's not so much that the national debt is so horrendous within the United States. Uh, it's just that the uh, future liabilities in terms of war and uh, in terms of the medical expenses that are being built into the war, $100 billion worth of medical expenses coming for the veterans and so on, uh, that is particularly catastrophic. The other thing that occurs, of course, is that because America is the richest country in the world, it tends to draw the most corrupt people to, its, uh, to the top, right? And so um, uh, America has a particularly... Uh, uh, dangerous situation because of the sort of military-industrial complex. Uh, its its uh, its demise is a little bit more risky than someone like Sweden and France. But all of the Western countries are facing exactly the same kind of problems with indebtedness and with. I mean, the the major issue. I don't want to get into a whole discussion about demographics here, but the major issue is demographics, right? The fact is that the West simply is not reproducing. Right. I mean, uh, the, the birth rate is ridiculously low in the West. So, for instance, you know, the, the sort of bi my big fat Greek wedding scenario where you have endless cousins and brothers, um, the, the, uh, the Greek repro reproduction rate is like 1.2 children per couple, uh, which is, you know, no, no, no culture ever survives that. I mean, that's simply impossible, especially with the welfare state. Right. Uh, I don't know what it is in England and Canada. It's very low. And I was going to get into it this uh, week. We can talk about it more next week. But, you know, the Muslim world has three and a half kids. Uh, per couple, and the Western world is like between 1 and 1.5. The U.S. is a little bit higher, but, uh, um, sorry, 2.1, yeah, the U.S. is a little bit higher, uh, but that's all going to change as well, right? I mean, as 
uh, as uh, state power increases, birth rate decreases for a variety of reasons we can get into another time. But, uh, you know, it really comes down to demographics, right? As people get older, there simply it becomes an inverted pyramid of income transfers in that this, you know, incredibly wealthy older people are looking to get all of their social security from younger people who are, are simply going to find that uh, working uh, doesn't really pay. Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, let me just uh, wait till everyone's come back. So, uh, yeah, so I mean, the U.S. is in a better standpoint than a lot of Europe is in terms of demographics, but uh, for sure, uh, it is—it's uh, ridiculously bad in Europe. And of course, that's partly because of the whole—it's largely because of the whole state of society. I'm just waiting. It says zero people in here. I'm just waiting for Skype to give me back the control. Um, I'm just going to uh, uh, switch uh, uh, Adi off, and uh, I'm just going to have to. Hang on. Let me just. Uh, we've got a bit of a heavy breather on, which uh, is probably turning me on a little bit too much. Uh, Addy, go ahead. Yeah, so you're talking about the inevitability of the collapse of the U.S. government. Uh, although, um, how, and I, I know what you base your assumptions on, but I think we need to get a little more, um, more into it. Are we exactly sure that this will happen? I mean, uh, the U.S. likely will default on the foreign debts, but it's not a sure thing. I, I think statism is here to stay. I think um, I see exactly a way that in which the U.S. government is going to disappear or fade away, as um, it is um, seen in the libertarian world. I mean, we no, don't I, don't, I don't see it. Sorry, just to be clear, I don't see that the U.S. government is going to vanish and we're going to get Ancapistan or Lipitopia, um, you know, when that happens. No, sure, yeah. But certainly the size of the government is going to decrease much in the same way that in uh, the Russian system, right? I mean, the size of the government and the degree of the free market has changed considerably since the fall of the Soviet Empire in 89, but it's not like there's no government, right? I mean, it just means that it's smaller and most people are better off. Yeah, but we, we can only say that... Uh it will relapse up, uh, up to a point, but it won't. It won't uh, fade away. For instance, um, economic uh, recovery measures have been adopted in countries which uh, underwent uh, some sort of severe uh, crisis or were on the brink of something like that. For instance, some Chile, right? Even the Soviet Union, which later turned into Russia, they had uh, a few years of hyperinflation or uh, bad management, but the state, the government, eventually recovered, and uh, we can we can even look at um, at Hungary, which uh, which went uh, through the same collapse that Eastern Europe went through, and now it's at uh, the at a state that uh, encompasses half the economy, right? And uh, it's growing bigger. Absolutely, so there I, is. I, I don't uh, think it's a sure thing. I don't think it's. Exactly. We, we can well, a correction is a sure thing. Like, for sure, there's going to be a correction of some kind, and it's impossible to accurately predict, unless you're really in the inside, which, of course, I'm not, right? It's impossible to predict what kind of correction, the degree. It's going to be pretty severe, uh, but uh, it's impossible to tell. Ex you're right. There's no way to tell exactly uh, what form it's going to take. I, would, it's, I can guarantee you it's not going to, as, as you, I'm sure, would agree, that it's not going to result in a stateless society. But there will be a correction of some kind that will require a significant change. And the, the thing that's a little bit different from the cultures that you're mentioning is that uh, a lot of that had to do with um, 
outside intervention, either in terms of uh, foreign aid or the stability of the U.S. dollar and so on. The U.S. dollar really is uh, a lot of the hinge point of the um, uh, of the international economy. It's a sort of the, it is the gold standard, so to speak, in a horrible kind of way of the international economy. And if that goes uh, undergoes a significant change, uh, the euro won't be far behind. In, in its collapse because there's a lot of tie-in there, but uh, and whether the yen or whoever the, uh, the 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 Chinese currency will replace it, if that stability goes, it's going to be a little bit more significant to the world economy if the U.S. goes through a significant correction than say you know when Hungary and so on did. So I think it will be a larger effect, but you, uh, it certainly won't make a stateless society. But I think it will be a correction for the better. And the way that I'm trying my best, at least, to try and make it as much of a correction for the better is to put as many ideas out there as possible so that people understand that it's not freedom that failed, but coercion that failed. Yeah, this kind of makes sense. And uh, a second point that I, I had uh, was about self-sacrifice and the doctrine of sacrifice. And uh, this is observed uh, in quite a lot of ideologies and even on our libertarian that there will be some time where invited uh, um, people, right, so leaders will have to give up their lives in order to establish this uh, stateless society, this freedom society. And I think, uh, I think the desire to sacrifice oneself is exactly the opposite of this um, objective that we have. I think we have to establish uh, in some way that the self is at the center of morality and the source of morality. And so to reject the self and to deny the self or to place it um, in a value system, um, to place it in another place than the base of the value system, to do that would be to undermine our objective, right? And this is, um, I agree with you that yeah. I agree with you that the self should be at the center of morality and truth as long as it's myself. Like as long as it's me and Steph that's at the center of everybody's uh, truth and, and, and reality, that's, that's perfectly fine with me. Uh, no, I agree with you. The, the, the self, uh, there is no identity, there is no existence without the self. And there is no uh, ob any objective or external measure to say this self is more important than that self. You should sacrifice yourself to me. I should sacrifice myself to you. It sort of reminds me of when I was a kid. I read this Peanuts cartoon, the, the old Charles Schultz thing. And... Um, uh, I think uh, um, Charlie Brown went to Linus or something and said, you know, what is the purpose of life? Right? And he said, uh, you know, the purpose of life is to make others happy. Right? I mean, that's sort of the standard religious response, right? the standard collectivist response. And Charlie Brown said, well, I'm not happy. And then he turned and said, somebody's not doing their job. Right? <laughs> and that's actually kind of funny, right? Uh, Harry Brown used to have this uh, metaphor where he'd say, you know, if the purpose of life is to make others happy, I actually can't be happy. I can only give you happiness, but then you have to turn and give the other person happiness. And they have to turn and give the other person happiness, and nobody ever ends up being happy. They're just trying to busy running around trying to make other people happy. I actually find it very annoying when people try to make me happy. You know, like when you get those waiters who are like, hi, is there anything else I can get for you or anything else I can do for you? It's like, you know, just leave me alone. Let me eat, right? And so I don't actually like it when people try to make me happy. Uh, I just sort of prefer it when we're engaged in a chat. I mean, if you've ever been around obsequious people, you know just how kind of stomach-turning it is, right? So uh, I absolutely agree with you. We cannot have 
uh, a philosophy that is going to be at all rational unless it recognizes the primacy of the individual, which, as I talked about in the Introduction to Philosophy series, is really the only, the only instance in which human life exists. And if you're interested in human life, it has to be the individual that is the center of your moral philosophy because there is no other evidence or examples of human life. There is no collective life, no nation life, no spiritual life that is collective in a religious sense. There is only individuals who are alive. And the idea of sacrifice... Uh, as Ayn Rand quite rightly pointed out, it's like the question, of course, is sacrifice to whom, right? So people say you need to sacrifice your life for your country. Uh, that's a whole lot different than saying you need to go and get killed so that Cheney can get some money, right? I mean, that's, you know, when you look at the reality of what occurs in the realm of sacrifice, it's never to anything abstract. It's always to some other individual, and there's never been any reason explained why that individual should be so much more important than you that you should sacrifice your life or your values to that person. I mean, that's real exploitation. Yeah, we, we could also apply the universality principle and self-sacrifice or sacrifice for an idea certainly not personal or cannot be because if you are willing to do that to yourself, then you must be willing to do that to, to others, right? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to, somebody has wrote, uh, written here, uh, Steph, UK national debt is lower today than it was in 1997 when Blair first became PM. Public expenditure has risen largely because of extra financing for the NHS and other public services. You also have to note that the UK is only occupying Basra now, which is in the south of Iraq, I guess. The US had a far more extensive role in the war and occupation, of course, so I don't think our government has spent that much in comparison. So somebody's going to have a look for these statistics, and we'll certainly get back to them because it's a very interesting question. Uh, Remember also that these are government statistics. There's no independent auditing of these kinds of government statistics. There's a very interesting website you can search for called Shadow Government Statistics, which uh, actually is other ways of calculating things like unemployment and the national debt and so on. Because basically, I mean, the government simply manipulates statistics in order to make itself look better. I would certainly be very skeptical about government statistics about things like a lower national debt. They're certainly not independently audited and verified. Like, for instance, when the, um, one of the things that the government does when unemployment gets too high is it just redefines unemployment. So then it says, well, if you've stopped looking for work, you're no longer unemployed. It takes you off the rolls and puts you, I don't know, in some other category like an <laughs> illegal alien or something. But uh, So, I mean, again, I want to sound skeptical, but let, we'll certainly look into this more. But I certainly would be careful in talking about government statistics from this standpoint. All right, we are at two hours and 20 minutes, and that means my stomach begins to growl, which is not to say that I can't take another question or comment or two, but to try and keep them relatively brief if you have something. Uh, I've certainly opened the mics. If you would like to uh, ask a question or make a comment, uh, please uh, please uh, go ahead. We have but crackling and the vague intake of breath as people try to get the oxygen back in their lungs after I've sucked it right out for the last two hours and 20 minutes. Uh, okay, well, if nobody has any other comments, last, uh, last chance, we can then wrap it up for today. I certainly thank everybody uh, for, uh, for joining us. I really, really appreciate it. Um, wonderful questions, as always. And uh, I really do appreciate everybody's time, efforts, uh, amazing work uh, that's going into the board. We are getting some extraordinary uh, activity on the board, uh, which is great. Um, we have had, uh, I'm just going to actually just go and check this right now, but we have had quite a number of uh, people who have joined the boards uh, recently, um, and uh, let me just uh, check our numbers. We're definitely over 250, uh, 250 members, which I'm uh, very pleased with. That's uh, ahead of schedule, you know, and of course it's all, I'm all about the schedule, uh, the projected growth, which is good. I just wanted to mention as of a couple of days ago, we've had our last 
uh, our largest amount of downloads so far, uh, 50,000 uh, downloads in um, uh, in uh, the first 20 days of October. That certainly is uh, the best month we've had so far. Uh, and also we've had uh, uh, about uh, 10 or 11,000 video views on Google and YouTube, which I uh, very much appreciate and I think it's great. We have 256 users on the Free Domain Radio board. Um, I regularly see 30 to 80 guests online, and we, have, of course, have a, an enormously vibrant and positive community. I certainly would also like to thank and compliment everyone for uh, the very high degree, not just of intellectual content on the board, but of emotional maturity and uh, wisdom, uh, which is not to say that everybody just applauds everybody else for all their wonderful posts, but where there is conflict, I'd just like to point out that it is handled in a respectful and positive and inviting manner and yet at the same time is not insipid and all positive. So uh, I really want to applaud everybody for the magnificent work that is going into that board. I certainly appreciate it, and uh, it is doing an enormous amount. Uh, we can't tell how much good we're doing just yet, but I can tell you that we're doing quite a lot. I think that this is a very uh, great conversation that we're having here, and I think it's going to have an effect. Uh, we don't know where, we don't know how, but I think when it comes, it will be quite uh, surprising. Oh, and I also want to mention I've been asked to speak at the Libertarian Convention here in Canada. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to do it or not because I'm pretty sure they won't want to hear what I have to say. I'm still mulling it over. Uh, and I'd also like to thank you uh, for the people who um, gave me the feedback on the article that's going into the book on uh, sort of personal experiences in the freedom movement. So uh, thank you so much, and uh, I will uh, talk to you guys next week. Have a fantastic week.